Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to OK Podcast. My name is Hayden. My name's Kamila. And today we are going to be talking about kimono and kimono fashion. And later in our Patreon segment, we're going to have a very, (laughs) very interesting topic on, one, our first experiences with kimono. Yes. And then we are going to be talking about cultural appropriation and kimono. Is it uh, culturally appropriative to wear kimono? Is it not? What are the do's and the don'ts? Et cetera, et cetera. And though the guests we will be talking with are not Japanese natives, them being very close working in the industry of kimono, what have they heard about what's proper about wearing these kimono? Like, what do they think, Japanese natives? We understand that there might be a difference of opinion between Japanese natives and Japanese Americans about cultural appropriation and what constitutes as that. But we just wanted to, like, at least give one perspective. So J Fashion has a really rich and complex history that crosses cultures and develops trends even in mainstream fashion. We can see a lot of examples of J Fashion mm-hmm. being used in mainstream fashion. For example, Larme K. Yeah. You can kind of see it taking root in Western fashion, fast fashion designs. True, true. But what happens when modern street fashion mixes with traditional wafuku, Japanese clothing? We've seen some examples from ACDC Rag recently, but there's so much more to discuss. Today, we're sitting down with the co-owners of Tangerine Mountain Imports and Designs, Sherry and Terry, to talk about a recent project of theirs and how they've seen wafuku and kimono develop throughout the years. But before we get into that, and even before we get into our Kawaii Spotlight and our events for this month and mm-hmm. our easily accessible Kawaii finds, Kamila recently went to the Gyaru Summit at It was at like it was like a few different places. I think the main part of it on Saturday was uh, at Chicago Reunion, which was like a cool event space. Yeah, the whole thing was about other countries and what we call garusa, which are like groups of garu dressers and things like that. They kind of come together under like maybe one message or a singular style or, or a region. They usually have a garu summit and America doesn't really like if they have had it it's not been often like there's blackout yeah but blackout is like the only one that i'm aware of oh there's been other garusa in america but the garu summit sort of event mm-hmm. um i haven't heard of taking place in america before okay so the event was called the north american garu summit and there were representatives from a few different garusa including um 109 degrees blackout and I can't remember the name of the Garusa from um, London, but there was a representative from their Garusa and then some like non-adjacent Garu. Either there were people there that really liked Parapara and wanted to go to an event where they'd get to like show off their skills. I saw some of the Pada Pada videos. They were really fun. Yeah. There's also like people like me who are just like, oh, I want a chance to like practice Gaudio style in a space where I'd be able to meet up with other people who are interested in the same thing. That's why I attended the event. It was so much 
fun. I'm so, so glad. much fun. Yeah, the first night we went to like a dinner together and I didn't have any idea like who was going to be coming. So there were some people that came that I saw at KatsuCon last year, just meeting so many new people, like people from St. Louis and people from Colorado. Yeah, just like a different group of people that I'm used to seeing. So you really got a sense of the Garu culture from just going to this event, common conversations that are had, um, years put into the community, you know, maybe not even dressing in Garu for a while, but just being like active in forums or keeping up with different models and stuff that were in Egg Magazine. And um, there was a whole bunch of magazines there that you can look through. We were swapping clothes. And then like we went to a club and we were like dancing. We went to a uh, izakaya, which is, yeah, <laughs> in Wicker Park. Oh, cool. Yeah, we actually, was it um, Kizuki or was it? Um, I think it was Kizuki. Okay. Yeah, so we went there. That was really cool and introduced ourselves during the dinner. It was just so fun to like, and we learned a, a powder powder routine together. Like, there were people who like knew how to do different songs and stuff, and so they were like getting up there and performing. And then at the end, we all like learned one together. And that was really fun because I had never done para para, so I was just all like, oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, I'm just like, I want to get up there and dance, but I don't know any of the routines, and I feel like I should have practiced, but oh well. But yeah, so it was cool that we got to do that, and we and we filmed it, so that's going to be, like, put up. It was so much fun, like, meeting people of, like, different amount of seniority in the community and just like, oh, I remember when this thing happened back in 2000 this, and I was just like, <laughs> wow, there's so much just, like, history and coming camaraderie, especially since they they have this uh, tradition of having the Garusa and the group of people who are like helping them out. And their goal is to spread Garu fashion. It's just it's just different. I just love how each community of style is just just a different feel of like hanging out and vibe. Like I, I just love seeing that stuff. So it was a fun event. That sounds awesome. I'm glad it was really successful. That's great. I, I feel that Garu is a very underrepresented fashion at the moment yeah um, from what it used to be in the mm-hmm. late 90s early noughties so mm-hmm. that's awesome that's really great and just in case any of you have noticed we do have a different setup today for our mics our usual booth is under construction right now yeah which was very unfortunate i just but found ho- out but hopefully it's better maybe <laughs> maybe yeah. there's that <laughs> we've had a lot of technical difficulties in that booth it sucks for right now just this one month but Hopefully it's not too bad, and hopefully next month it'll sound even better, and mm-hmm. we won't have to deal with this ever again. again yes. <laughs> but off of that topic, let's head into our events for this month. Coming up, we have Get Wild, Be Sexy, speaking of Gyaru, mm-hmm. a look at Gyaru fashion at Katsukan. Gyaru has seen many doors open with shows such as My First Girlfriend is a Gal. Wait, what? What is that? It's uh, fairly recent, but I think I've heard heard of it. That sounds funny. I want to yeah, watch that. Yeah, we need to watch it. Um, please tell me Galkochan and Citrus. However, a lot of people still aren't quite familiar with the history or fashion subcultures that made Gyaru the huge influence that it is today. 
Mm-hmm. Hosted by the 109 Degrees Garusa, they'll also be doing a live Gangaro makeup demonstration on a lucky participant. Oh, man, I wish I was there. Uh, I can uh, just imagine, like, <laughs> the Lolitas in Garu, like in Ganguro Garu. Yeah, that oh my gosh. so funny. But then, like, I mean, there's Hime Garu. You can, That's like, true, incorporate yeah. your Lolita into it. If you wish to have a Gangaro makeover, they ask to please come back barefaced. They will also open the floor to some Q&A for the audience. This event is taking place Saturday, February 16th this year at 4.15 p.m. to 5.45 p.m. in Maryland. And then, like, this is just going to be, like, a whole rundown of KatsuCon. Like, KatsuCon has, like, so many different J-fashion panels and events that, like, this is Hell the... yeah, I- KatsuCon. <laughs> right. Like, this is, like, the ideal, basically, J-fashion convention without it saying we're a J-fashion convention. Best Japanese culture convention that caters to J-fashion. Yes. Yes, that's what I feel KatsuCon is doing. Like, they don't have, like, a ton of fashion guests as far as brands coming and stuff like that. But they do have a ton of community involvement and panels that are beyond the, like, oh, we're going to have a one-on-one how to do Lolita panel, which is pretty cool. And they have the audience for it. So our next event from KatsuCon is Living Doll Makeup Panel by Dolphy. Ooh, very exciting. Yeah. And though this isn't necessarily J-fashion, I feel like it's J-fashion adjacent. adjacent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's going to take place February 15th at 11 a.m. in Live 1. Then we have Nocturnal Royal at Katsukan. Ethereal night has fallen over the palace, and beasts have taken flight to join us for a wintry revelry. Don't rest your eyes or lay down your head, for in a blink, the party could be over. Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> I like be, I like pulling out my spooky voice, or yeah, like spooky, yeah. sexy, sultry voice. <laughs> Let that voice over, like... Yeah, the voice, the voice actor side yeah. come out. Yeah. <laughs> All matter of fae, forest creatures, and fairy tales come together in what could only be described as nocturnal royal. Be you light or dark, show us your best outfit and join us for a fabulous feast. Who shall be crowned at the end of this wicked affair? Ooh, this sounds so exciting! Yeah, the the description of this is like so good. I just had to just include it word for word. Yes, (laughs) I love it. Tickets are $41.50, and it includes a swag bag, food, hell yes, yes, and a raffle ticket. And it's going to be taking place Saturday, February 16th at 12.30 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at Grace's Mandarin. Last one that I have in line, which you should just look up KatsuCon panel, like just attend all the panels and stuff because there's so much more. They even have one that's dressing outside of the rules of Lolita, (gasps) you know, like... How could, like how to dress those things up and just like, ooh, I love it. Unless it's a trick. You come there and just are like, all right, you stupid eaters. We got you all in one room. <laughs> but anyway, KatsuCon Fashion Show, which is going to be featuring some cool different brands um, like Sweet Bits, Belladonna, The Campsite, and more. One fashion show is going to be Friday at 9 p.m. and the other one is Saturday at 7 p.m. I believe the difference is in whether it's a casual brand or a 
more like, oh, we made all these like big extravagant dresses and things like that. Just go to both. (laughs) Yeah, just go to both. You know you want to. Next, we are going to hop into our Kawaii Spotlight. We have the Coupot International Pharmacy Collection first. From this collection, I picked the Capsule Pierced Earring in Purple, just because purple is my favorite color, no matter what. Coupot Revenge is typically a VK brand, yeah? No, I'm thinking Q- sex. No, I'm thinking sex pot revenge. Yeah, Q pot does. Oh, these I said Q pot revenge. revenge. <laughs> See, shows how much I know. No, it's okay. It's just so much brand knowledge in your head. Yeah, it's like mixing together. Um, Q pot is kind of like that brand that makes the really intricate like replicas of food and stuff, and oh, like makes it an okay, accessory, okay. something like that. Well, anyways, I do think that these earrings could work really well for Visual K. Just with the deep purple color yeah, combined with the silver, I think yeah. is perfect for VK. Yeah, and I really like the concept of all of these items since it's like it's their spin on Yami Kawaii mm-hmm. or if you want to call it Manhara. I think it's really cool. It, it makes it look really um, kind of like steps it up to like classy. Like maybe you could wear this with your like Lolita outfit too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, if you wanted to just add some little elements that were more subtle and like refined or something. I think it's a, a good collection for that. The item that I chose to look at a little bit more closely was the Hope Tablet and Angel Capsule Necklace. It's a gold chain necklace with kind of the pill element from the earrings that we were looking at, except it's gold instead of a silver. And the pill is one of those two-tone pills. And then the other charm is kind of like the pill that tablet like a tablet yeah 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 so it's more like a tablet and it has like the split and on the top half there's a coupot logo and then at the bottom it says hope i really like the messaging of this i feel like sometimes yami kawaii can go more into the like sadness despair yeah kind of disturbing yeah very gloomy But yeah, yeah, you're right, because medication is a big part of a lot of people's lives, and it does help them with a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I do really like this line. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more positive than dark and gloomy. Yeah, yeah. So if you're looking for something that's yammy kawaii but is more upbeat, that's this collection. So our next kawaii spotlight is the Park Harajuku and Menhera-chan collaboration which has been, like, reported on by OdaQuest. So Park Harajuku is... It's a store. It's not necessarily, like, a brand that makes their own, like, clothing and things like that. They're, like, a store that kind of holds a lot of different brands, including, like, Omocat. I've seen, like, some other stuff from, like, Anime Expo, J Fashion Booths being sold there as well. Interesting. Think of, like, Fickle Wish, but not so much with the shop girls and all that. It's just, like, a store, an international store that's in Japan. They're going to be doing a collaboration with Azaki Bisco's character Madhera-chan. Basically, we're looking at, like, pictures of what may be coming out, what's slated to be announced. Yeah, slated to be announced. But we thought that you would like to be on the lookout for these items. They're really, really cute. We got a couple of bomber jackets. One is black, one is pink, 
on both of them, they have some really big and elaborate back designs that are really cool. So you can pick it out for if you want to do pastel goth, if you want to do regular goth. On the black one, it looks like there's Menhetta Chan. And on the pink one, it looks like there is Sabukuru Chan. As far as I can tell, all I can see is like little bits of blue, though, so I'm not sure. Yeah. They also have a sweater that is going to be released, but that's about all that they've shown us so far. So we will see in the coming months when that comes out. Yeah, in addition, those who pre-order enough of the collaboration will have a chance to either receive a signed character illustration or have something of their own choosing signed by Izaki Bisco. That is awesome. Yeah. That is so cool. They're going to have, like, a meet-and-greet at Park Harajuku, set to take place January 19th. Hopefully that's when everything's going to be coming out. For those interested in checking out even more about the collaboration, be sure to visit Park Harajuku's official website. Next, pulling it back into our uh, North American community over here, there is the Sugary Symbiote Dreamy Diagnosis Sneak Peek. Now, Sugary Symbiote is, like I said, an independent uh, North American brand. And wow, just wow. It brings Maho Shoujo plus Yamikawa to the next level. It is amazing. I picked out this t-shirt And in the background of the t-shirt, you got some capsule pills, some hearts, some confetti. So you're getting that Yamikawa aesthetic. And on the front, the main focal point is these two girls. And let me just mention, both of them, darker skin toned. Thank you very much. Enough with your pale aesthetic. Sugary Symbiote is known for doing, if like 99.9% black characters, all different shades, of course, and things like that. I don't think I've seen her do anything else. Good. But it shows two girls and they're wearing super cute wigs. One of them is pink. One of them is a little bit more lavender side. Mm-hmm. And they're really close together. They have beautiful smiles and beautiful they're eyes. they heart with their hands Yeah, they're making together. heart hands. And it's just beautiful. And I love it. And this t-shirt is now like on my wish list. It is so cute. I'm not usually a Yamikawa fan, yeah. but this is like sweet enough for me. Like just the message of like the two girls like being in love. I don't know if they're in love, but they're showing their love, and I love yeah. it. I love, like, love I love those sorts of things where it's just like, like relate to in a lot of different ways. And then I wanted to focus on this jacket they have here. It's like a really cute print. It has candies and bows with like a little heart in the center. Tamagotchi yeah. looking like uh, motifs. And then they have these like uh, a really big piece of the pattern where it's like another Yami Kawai girl. The thing about like Sugary Symbiote is like it's highly influenced by like Yami Kawai, but also Venom from Spider-Man. I love it. <laughs> so a lot of her characters, the designer is named Kiara by the way, and and a lot of her characters have those venom mouth, the venom grill. And so I just like her little like twist to it. And this is like a zip up hoodie jacket, something I totally would add to my collection of. I just like having like different styles in my back pocket. I just want to have something for like every themed event that I can. So I definitely would pull from Sugary Symbiote for Yami Kwai just for her like mixture of those two things. And this collection also has a couple of dresses and skirts, so there's something for everyone out there. Yeah. 
And so we have Local Fatty Chan Tea Spring release. So this designer is quite local to us. They live in Indiana, so we get to like see them sometimes and like look at what they're working on. And we're really excited about their Teespring release that they've got going on right now. If you remember, we had Bunny, aka Fatty Chan, on our show before talking about plus size J fashion. If you haven't listened to it, what are you doing with your life? Go and listen. Come on. Bunny that... is hilarious. You yes. need to listen to them. This is one of my favorite episodes. I love Bunny so much. They make, like, YouTube videos and stuff, too. Yes. Like, they're just... And this Teespring release is high-key, unamazing, amazing release. It's a mood. I picked out the Eat Shit and Die Manhara Bear because, one, I love the color scheme in this. The yellow bear with the pink bow, and I prefer it on a blue background t-shirt, but you can also pick it on pink, on purple, on different blues. There's so many different options you can pick from for backgrounds, and it has a bear holding up two middle fingers and its eyes are like all crazy hypnotizy kind of yeah, looking eyes, yeah and on the bottom it says eat shit and die and that's kind of my mood whenever uh, like people talk to me in j fashion or like harass yeah. me in j fashion so i feel like this shirt just fits my mood a lot <laughs> yeah yeah and then the shirt that I chose to look at is What's the Point Menhera Bear? You can get it in a lot of different colors. The two that I really liked is the yellow background and the peachy pink background. And it has a blue bear with really like cute bubbly eyes, but it has red under circles and just like looking very tired with a little smile and like a band-aid over its head. And smoking a like a drug, drug. <laughs> yeah <laughs> with like the smoke creating like a broken heart and it says at the bottom what's the fucking point <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel like that's a mood, you know, hustling all day trying to get that bread. And sometimes you're just like, what's the point of this? We eat shit and die. No, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So This entire collection is just a mood. And keep an eye out because there are going to be new releases soon. And Mm -hmm. it's high key, also gay mood, big gay mood. Like I'm getting at least two t-shirts from Bunny and like the next two months because uh but there's like the other shirt that i like i feel like that's not for me to wear but there's the brats fats design there's the fatty and the barbie Barbie font font. yeah shirts and so it's very much trying to talk about like body positivity and trying to make fat not be a negative word negative connotation yeah i just really like that i like how in your face it is Mm -hmm. And if you need any help coordinating these t-shirts and you want them really badly but you don't know what to do, Bunny has made different coordinate pictures on the local Fatty Chan Facebook page and Instagram Mm -hmm. page. So go there for inspiration. See what you can find. A lot of it is really affordable. Like one of them looks high-key bougie and it's all like stuff from Forever 21. It's amazing. It has a really great size range. 
Next up, we are going to hop into our accessible kawaii finds. All right, so we have the Valentine's Day decorations at Target. You look forward to this every single year. Yes. It is amazing. And very affordable because it's in that little, like, I don't know, is it like a $5 and below section? Yeah, bargain bins. The bargain bins. Yeah, so you basically go in there and try to, like, scrummage for whatever. But they have a... Scrummage. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, very decora. But, yeah, they have, like, really cute Band-Aids with different Valentine's Day designs and including dinosaurs with, like, heart scales and all that. And then they have window decorations. They've got things that will be hanging. They've got things that are more, like, DIY for you to, like, make banners and different things like that out of. They have pillows and blankets and socks usually as well. So those are some really cool items that are, like, actually fashion and not just, like, lifestyle J-fashion stuff, stuff that you can actually wear on your body. Right. And then I also found... The I Love Kawaii art book at Half Price Books, which is also very affordable and also a place that you want to try and like visit if it's in your area. Because Half Price Books has a lot of things that are given away. That's the type of place it is. And they had a lot of these I Love Kawaii art books. I don't know if it was just from some store that needed to get some of the inventory off of their hands, but Half Price Books is really awesome. Very cool. And I picked out the H&M men's section, like the entirety of it, for Boyish Fairy K. Now, I love H&M. It's a great store overall. It has awesome sizing. They've done some great stuff for the LGBT community. And if you go down into the men's section, you can find a lot of awesome Fairy k items. I've bought a pair of pink men's athletic shorts that I Mm. absolutely adored until they mysteriously vanished. But to replace those that mysteriously disappeared, I went back down to see if they had the same ones. They sadly didn't, but I did find a pair of kind of like t-shirt material shorts that they had in pink and also in purple, kind of like a lavenderish purple. Mm, So they also have light pastel colored button-ups that you can use like under or over sweaters or t-shirts. That's something that I love to do in summer and winter, Mm -hmm. respectively. And just overall, the men's section at H&M has really awesome fairy cable stuff, especially if you're uh, a masculine person and want to incorporate your masculinity into Fairy K. Oh, I definitely will be directing Simon there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Just like a lot of really good basics is what they have. And oh. then I also picked out the All That Glitters CAI Target makeup line. Ooh. Yeah, if any of you are familiar with the store Riley Rose, they oh, have yes. these kind of baggies with a spout on top that have glitter gel in them. Thing is, those things are like 15, 20 bucks mm-hmm. a pop. It's mm-hmm. absolutely ridiculous. I went to Target, found this on clearance, got it for like four or five bucks. The same size, different glitter Ooh, that's in yes. it. And it, it's so cheap. It's cruelty-free, which is awesome. Oh, nice It's enough. not vegan, so sorry if, for those of you who are out there who are vegan only for their makeup. But cruelty-free is a really great way to go as well. And the All That Glitters line also has a bunch of other cool things like lipsticks and eyeshadows. I do not recommend the glitter eyelashes. You pull that off of the plastic and glitter falls everywhere. 
and that shit gets in your eyes. Mm. Yeah, just touching it, the glitter falls off of the eyelash, and then you have half the lash that is covered in glitter, the other half of the lash that is black. And then the glue doesn't even stick to the lash, it just sticks to the glitter, so it keeps oh, falling keeps off falling of your off. eye. And you just have glitter stuck to your eye now and not glitter lashes. So don't get the glitter lashes, but do definitely get the glitter gel for your hair and your Mm -hmm. face. Get the eyeshadow. Get Mm -hmm. the lipsticks. All of that is really good. Just don't go for the eyelashes. And it's super affordable. All right. And then we have a notable outfit of the month by Dolly Mamorido. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, usually I see her Facebook page as uh, Dolly Momo, but she has like kind of like a more personal page and then also, I guess, a more branded page. So that's her, her that's her brand name. I wanted to talk about one of her more recent outfits. She runs the group Toronto Harajuku style, which is meetups and different things like that. And they did a Ishoku Hara meetup, and she had this really cool outfit that I thought was awesome, where I'm thinking, like, she's, like, painted herself more, like, purple sort of color, and then she had a big purple wig on that has, like, two, like, really fluffed out pigtails, pigtails, and then has some—it looks like peeps, but it's not— But she has, like, two antennas that are, like, two little yellow, like, bears sticking out of her head. This red um, PVC dress. And it has, like, a cutout over her chest with red gloves, long gloves. And then these long, like, over-the-knee black shiny boots. And she's, like, sitting on this, like, countertop that has, like, it's really spacey. I don't know where they went. Um, (laughs) It is definitely space-aged. Yeah. Oh, actually, it says the location. The location is Power Up Bar. Ooh, very Um, cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And they did, like, a whole, like, photo shoot and stuff like that. There's, like, more people of the Toronto fashion scene that joined up in this event. I did see the group picture from that. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah. She wrote an article about it on torontoharajuku.com. So it's it's titled Ishoku Hara in Toronto. What? Yeah. The meet took place uh, January 5th and it seems like they really like the style and they're going to like keep doing some other Ishokohara meets in the future. I just wanted to, like, talk about it. Also, the fact that there's this community in Toronto that if you are in Canada, try to seek it out. I think it also has connections with Anime North, too. They go to that convention a lot. And with that, before we jump into our interview for this month, we just want to say a few quick things. First off, we want to give a thank you to our patrons, including Cora Maria, Foxy Proxy Roxy, Jade, Jesse Moon Hart, Puvathel, and Yolanda Hill. Thank you guys so much for being our patrons. We really do appreciate it. If you're interested in becoming a patron and receiving that patron content once a month, please head over to our Patreon. Consider becoming a three-tier donor, and you will get that as soon as it is ready. Yeah, and we want to hear from you. Like, if you have any, like, opinions on this episode, on the interview, cultural appropriation um, in connection to Kimono, please comment on our Facebook page or on the SoundCloud 
SoundCloud if you're listening from there. Also, if you want to be considered for Notable Outfit of the Month or you want to uh, recommend us someone's outfit, please use the OK Podcast hashtag on Instagram. Two other things that are super helpful to us. One, Facebook recommendations slash reviews. Those are super helpful to getting the word out. Shares on Facebook, on Instagram, on whatever social media site that you have. Sharing our podcast on there is super helpful. And iTunes reviews. Those help us a lot. So if you guys are interested and you want to help us in a way that's not monetary, share our episodes once a month. Share our Patreon. Share and review. All that stuff helps us so, so much much in just getting this podcast to a larger audience. Yeah, thank you. Hey y'all, it's Hayden. It's Kamala. We've talked a bit about how OK Podcast is a labor of love for us. Yes. Neither of us get paid to create this content and we make it because it's important and we love to do it. Yeah, doing this podcast does take a lot of time and a bit of money though. Because of that, we would like to tell you about our Patreon. If you become a monthly Patreon at any level, you'll get to contribute questions to our monthly guests. And if you donate at the $3 a month level, you'll gain access to our bonus patron content, which has special interviews with our guests. Like what it's like to be in a Garusa, switching styles, and tips on modeling in Japan. There's absolutely no obligation to become a patron whatsoever, but we would greatly appreciate it. So thank you so much, and now back to the show. Woo! And now we are going to jump into our guest segment for this month. Today we have Sherry and Terry, the founders of Tangerine Mountain, in our studio with us today. Sherry and Terry started Tangerine Mountain as a Chicago local family business to get kimono in as many hands as possible. They've been fortunate enough to have lots of access to usually unaccessible pieces of kimono, and today they're here to share it with us. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? Good. (laughs) Pretty good. Weather's a little iffy right now, a little unpredictable but we're getting through it yeah so sherry and terry you guys are here to first share what tangerine mountain is with us so for those who aren't familiar how did tm start well that that's an interesting story originally uh when i was in graduate school here downtown i was at the school of the art institute of chicago back in 2010 i was fortunate enough to go to japan for part of my master's thesis research it was kind of like a lifelong dream to be able to go terry and i have always always been fascinated by Japan ever since we were little and our dad first went Mm. to Japan, actually. Yeah. And uh, we had always had this idea that we wanted to incorporate Japan into, you know, our adult lives, our professional lives Mm. in whatever way we could. And when I was there, I was very fortunate to have an amazing professor. Um, His name was Stanley Murashige, and he showed me how to Japan, (laughs) you know, everything from this is how the post office works and this is how you do your laundry without your pants exploding and all that fun stuff. It really does seem like the Washington machines are going to explode <laughs> yes. when you do at the yeah. laundry at the laundromats out there yeah you really think it's going to explode yes. um, those those are the two things i had the most trouble one i didn't know there there are no addresses practically right it's yeah. like what is a street here right. i don't get it and then i had to do like one thing of laundry when i was in kyoto i was just like should i stay should i leave i don't mm-hmm. i i'm just going to stay so no one takes my laundry just in case yeah. oh yeah and yeah. the new eco friendly dryers with how they do like their their I guess spin cycle. It literally looks like the thing's a rocket that's about yeah. to take off. Yeah, it's 
was a little scary. But um, anyway, so he showed me how to do all that, which is great. But uh, he also introduced me to a lot of different people, like museum curators, um, people who have kimono shops that work in the kimono industry. Mm. Thanks to him, I was able to buy my first kimono, you know, in person over there during that trip. And uh, you also presented your thesis at Tokyo. I did. I presented my thesis in progress at Tokyo University, and that even today I still say that is that was the most stressful day of my life. Um, And it's true because I only had the flight to work on my presentation. Oh, my goodness. Because he didn't tell me that we were doing this until we were on the plane at takeoff. So I was like, no pressure. (laughs) But it went great. Yeah. Um, As someone who can only do, the only visual thing I can do is like slideshow, that is extremely stressful to me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, the pressure was on. And and kind of as a bit of a treat for how well all of that part of the trip went, he ended up bringing me and some of the chaperones for that part of the trip to a place called Koyasan. Koyasan is considered the physical place, uh, birthplace of Buddhism in Japan. And while I was there, there's this one particular spot on the mountain in Okunoin Cemetery. And there's a little tangerine vendor and we got tangerines and I was sitting right by this particular Jesus statue eating tangerines and I Skyped with Terry because at that moment, it was just like, I don't know the logistics. I don't know how we're going to make this work, but we have to do this. That was yeah. kind of the It was like specifically moment. kimono business or? Yeah. yeah. We, we had been kind of kicking around. We, we had bought a um, yukata at, it was uh, at Anime Central, I think it was, mm-hmm. one year. Yeah. And loved it, you know. And, and our dad had brought back kimono for us when we were little kids and he was in Japan. Mm. And so we'd see all of these pictures of kimono, and we'd see anime characters dressed in kimono, and it was sort of like, we we were fascinated with this, but we really had no real access to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what little access we had was very expensive. On, on the mountain, we were sort of kicking around the idea, you know, how would we get stuff to the country? Like, what would we mm. import? What would we do? Well, one of the, the big things that people seem to be fascinated about with Japanese culture is kimono. Mm. And we were fascinated with it. So just kind of talking about it, and Sherry was so excited to be out there and was saying this place is just magical. I mean, this is where the Tokugawa family is buried. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty important place. And yeah, so during that conversation, we both just decided we, we don't know how we're going to do this. We have <laughs> no we have idea, to. Yeah, but, but we, we have to do this. So yeah, from there, it was... A lot of research. Yeah. Because there, it, once you decide that you want to do something that it doesn't seem like many people have done before, rather than just jumping in and be like, okay, this is what I'm doing, you have to ask yourself, well, what do I need to know so that I can do this? Right. You know? yeah. So how do we get the stuff here? Are there any rules you know, for the United States for bringing this stuff mm-hmm. in? Are there any rules for Japan for allowing stuff to leave the country? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's finances, there's conversion rates, there's taxes. And, of course, yeah. all there's of the vehicle that you're going to use to sell these things. Are you going to uh, yeah, open up exactly. a physical store? Is it yeah. going to be online? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and we were fortunate that Sherry's <clears throat> husband has been in the... The anime convention um, circuit circuit mm-hmm. for many years. So going on fifteen. Yeah, now, he's I think. he's wow. going almost fifteen years. So he knew a lot of the local conventions. So we were able to bend his ear and figure out yeah. <laughs> where, where we were going to start with conventions. And fortunately, because Sherry had done Artist Alley at Anime Central mm-hmm. for 
like a decade. Twelve years. <laughs> Twelve years. Um, like, yeah, we're we're old fogies and Conyers actually, and um, so fortunately we we had some concept of how to convention. But it was definitely um, more like on the side of how do, how do we import? How mm-hmm. do we do this? There's no handbook mm-hmm. for how to import things. And when you're talking about international business, there are plenty of people who write books about how to international business. Her background is in art. Mine is in business. And even in B-School, there was no, here's how to do this. Yeah. Was, and, and, mm-hmm. and the main thing was, oh, Japan. Oh, yeah. It's like, this is how you do it for all these other countries. And then you come to Japan and, and everybody the, is just like, oh, wow, I don't want to touch it. it. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is really, really difficult. Yeah. Really, really difficult. And so, you know, Kauai, you do. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it was always approached as kind of a scary prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. I bet with import, you're importing very, some of these items are very old. Um, and they require a lot of delicacy. But then on top of that, there's the bureaucracy. There are um, custom, there are custom fees that get attached to it. Oh, customs. Oh, customs. (laughs) No, I I love customs, but I I think anybody that does international business, we always love and respect and appreciate customs and the jobs that they do. But unfortunately, them being very efficient at their jobs invariably comes at a time when... We need them to move faster and not yeah. slower. <laughs> there, are, there are things that we have to consider when we're importing things, even just talking about the time of year. We have to know yeah. about the situation at various ports in the United States. So there was mm. at one point a port um, workers strike. So that oh, affected us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, when there have been massive influxes of counterfeit goods, like um, oh, counterfeit, yeah, hoverboards, counterfeit hoverboards, the counterfeit hoverboard situation. Oh, yeah. There was a big story out of Chicago for the customs agency out here that a bunch of these hoverboards had come in. 60,000. So they basically held everything coming out of Asia, including some of our stuff. So that oh, was a man. huge delay for us. Yeah. Um, we have to know what's going on with Japanese ports. We have to know what's going on with hurricane season, with typhoons. Mm-hmm. We have to know, you know, sometimes there are things, there are delays for customs that we have no explanation for, but all mm-hmm. we can assume is maybe it's Department Department of Homeland Security saying we're pulling all containers from this or all containers or all ships that have yeah. containers from here or that contain this kind of item because there's some security risk that the public never hears about, but mm-hmm. someone yeah. in the government knows about it. So given that America is a terrorist target. Unfortunately, there's a lot of rigmarole that we have to go through Mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily have to go through in other countries. So there's there's a lot more. It's not just clicking the buy button. Yeah, no. I mean, there are people who can import in small quantities from Japan and who can just click the buy button and have things EMS to them. And that's great, you know, but we go in such quantity because we have so many conventions and because our stuff is so affordable that we go through inventory lickety split mm-hmm. right. and so we can't afford to do just a few boxes emsing like that that's yeah. so not yeah. <laughs> that's not our level you know right. we're we're at we're at the container level we're at the you know we're 13,000 pieces per order yeah wow. we're dealing yeah. with customs we're dealing with homeland security we're dealing with all kinds of things like that but the thing is is that before even getting to that point though we kind of had an idea just from 
hearing how other professionals around us have tried to do international business with other countries, we at least had some concept of, okay, mm -hmm. customs, it's a thing. Read up on customs, know the rules before you yeah. do anything. And like the Geneva Convention, you actually need to know. You need to know the It's Geneva not just Convention. something in a textbook. You actually have to yeah. know what the parameters are to know mm -hmm. that the things that you're bringing in are not going to be violating international treaties. You, you know? need to know mm -hmm. about um, invasive species. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Yes. So you and have, wood. And don't import wood. Wood. Mm. Lesson, um, kids, if you're going to do anything with importing, just just don't import don't wood to the United wood. States. Just don't. <laughs> um, you know, so you need, I mean, we have attorneys in the family, so that helps. And because of, um, like, our dad's background, going to Asia, he, he specializes in international commercial transactions. So because of his background and listening to him talk about his work, we had some concept of where to start. But still, there are many things that when we're working with people in Japan, people will say, well, we don't know what the answer is because no one's ever done this before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that even everything with customs and everything like we were just talking about, in reality, that's kind of a step two. In yeah. the whole process, you know, step one is you have to be able to have the product and know where mm -hmm. it is in Japan and how to source it. And yeah. I know that there are a lot of uh, people either just on vacation or, you know, some of the other maybe more hobby businesses out there that dabble in kimono a little bit that will, you know, maybe go to Japan for vacation, pack extra suitcases, go to one of the upcycle shops, cram their suitcases full and bring them back. And I mean, to be real, on my master's thesis trip, totally did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No shade is being thrown here no, for that. No, like, and I mean, honestly, yeah. even even now when we go to Japan... We can't resist. <laughs> we still go kimono shopping. We have a warehouse full of kimono back in the yeah. States. We have kimono brought to us straight from Japan. But we can't resist. And yet, we still come back with kimono in our suitcase. I mean, it's like those little finds. It's like thrifting. You yeah. find right. that little bit of gold. Exactly. You, you yeah, find exactly. something that you love and you're just like, hey, this is what I, I like it. So yeah, I'm my parents home. are... Um, um, they're antiquers, so okay. I know the feeling. My mm -hmm. mom, yes, <laughs> yeah. and they have indoctrinated me into that as well. Yeah. Nice. So whenever they are going to like Texas, especially Texas, yeah. they love Round Top. <laughs> they bring two <laughs> giant suitcases with them, yeah. and they are bringing it back and reselling it in their in their yeah. own space at the antique mall. So yeah. I yep. get that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing is, is though to be able to do like the kind of stuff that we do with the bulk that we do. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we got so popular so quickly. We yeah. had to figure out step two. No, step one. Well, really, step. Well, we how to do step one more efficiently. More, well, yeah, we had to figure out how to do step one better, and then we had to figure out step two of how to get stuff in large larger quantities, quantities mm -hmm. because we we started off with the goal of maybe doing a few shows with a small quantity. I think of, we signed up for like three shows at I, first. I think it was something like three Just or five. Test it. I don't know. It was a few shows that your husband recommended. And yeah. by the time we got to, I think it was the third show, we had been invited to about 50 more. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody was like, wait, you have kimono? And, and like you actually this. know how to do kimono. You know like how to dress people. people. And yeah. nerds love kimono. Yeah. They really oh, do. yeah. I mean, everybody has seen Star Wars. Everybody can see the Japanese influence and mm -hmm. the costuming mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Lots of people have grown up with anime now. Yeah. Um, so they see kimono 
pretty regularly. Uh, regularly, but they're still so hard to find in the States, and yeah. that's that's why we do what we right. do. Right, and so hard to, like, kind of know what you're doing with them. Like, yeah. even yeah. if you try to order something online, you don't want to, like, dress yourself incorrectly. So exactly. just to, like, find someone in person to, like, fit you and mm-hmm. just, like, yep. oh, okay, this is what I need to look like in the end. Exactly. Yeah. And even yeah. to that, even taking it one step back, knowing the type of kimono that you're wearing for whatever right. situation you have. Yeah. And it, it's for reasons like this that we decided that as we were kind of having our, uh, I guess, catastrophic success is the right <laughs> term for it, um, we made the really active decision that we would make it a point to keep on going back and forth as much as possible yeah. to make relationships with antique dealers, with mm-hmm. businesses, with mom and pop shops, so that, you know, for whatever gaps we had in our kimono knowledge, it gave us the opportunity to learn from the masters living there and also to do a bit of a reality check, you know, because, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, buy a product, ship a product, sell a product, make money. You kimono know? are different. K- kimono are a little bit different, yeah. you know. We, I mean, yes, we need to tell them, you know, keep the lights on, support the family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with kimono, there are different rules. It's, you know, tradition. It's fashion. It's this weird kind of hybrid that keeps on mm-hmm. growing and changing. And let's be real. We're two white chicks yeah. <laughs> from the United States yeah. selling kimono. So yeah. we wanted to make sure that we had the reality check on the Japanese side of, are you guys okay with this? Like, yes, we mm-hmm. can do this, but should we, should we do mm-hmm. this? Are you mm-hmm. cool with us doing this and doing this in what's considered traditional ways as well as some of the more modern ways? Like we're seeing coming out of the streets of Harajuku and mm-hmm. with designers like Jidoro Saito and everyone like that right. and all the crazy stuff they're doing. Like, yeah, they can do it. They're Japanese. They're in Japan. Yeah. Are we allowed to do this? Right. And right. so far with all of the suppliers, with all of the contacts that we've made, and with everything we've done, so far the resounding answer has been, yes, please, we want to share Japan with the world, and you're doing Mm -hmm. it right. You're actually educating yourselves. You're not exploiting it. You're trying to enhance it and share it with people. And moreover, educating other people, your your buyers. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Like, I'm glad that it has been a resounding yes. Yeah. So you brought us some items today. Let's take a look and discuss Yes. Cool. So where in history do you want to start? Do you want to start with old stuff and go to new, or do you want us to do new stuff and then go back in time? Old stuff, go yeah. to new? Yeah. Okay, old to new. It'll feed to, like, you know, what, what else we're going to talk about. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Sure. All right. So we brought a selection of pieces that don't typically make it out of the warehouse because they are older pieces or a little bit more fragile. Something that, well, while Terry gets her gloves on Ooh, here, because some so of these fancy. pieces are very old. feel like um, a curator. You know, know a lot of people, museum. when they see us on the convention circuit, you know, people know that we deal in vintage and we deal in new, but a lot of people don't necessarily realize the extent to which we deal in vintage going to antique and not just for the actual wearable garments. Mm-hmm. So we've been working to amass a collection of historical books, um, historical garments, even getting into samurai armor and wow. other such things because, you know, it's not just our goal to make money through kimono. It's mm-hmm. not something that's nearly as commercial as that. We want to mm-hmm. be able to be an educational powerhouse mm-hmm. for these things as well. Yeah. So we figure since we have the the access and the context in order to get some of these historical books and bring them to the States, you know, if we can do things that can make these 
items accessible to the American public and the English-speaking public that may not read Japanese or may not have access otherwise, then we're fulfilling a major goal of ours for education. So one of the things that we're focusing on specifically in 2019 is figuring out the best way to digitalize some of this information. You know, what's going to go to print, what's going to be available on the website, and how to get this stuff out there for people. So you guys are getting a little bit of a sneak peek Mm, of some of that stuff. Like, have you guys teamed up with museums or cultural centers with this because yeah. this is something that could be really cool. We're we're working on it. Mm-hmm. It's one We've of those things. To. Yeah, or even like to speak at conventions and stuff like that. That we've been able to uh. do. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, we have guest status at Anime Iowa. We're working on a few more conventions currently. We can't say which ones yet. But yeah. And in addition to that, we have done education programs for, like, the Japan America Society. We've helped to support, like, the kimono dressing events from the Japanese Culture Center that's yeah. here downtown. Um, uh, we've done a program at SAIC. Yep. Hopefully more to come. Yep. So we, we are actively looking for that. We have done panels at cons, but, you know through being able to do things like having guest status at cons, it'll provide us with a little bit more resources and opportunity to really trot out the old stuff Yeah, um, to make it more accessible for people. Yeah, have you done anything like, like have a blog or like videos or anything like that? That's one of the things that we've been working on. We've been looking at partnering with a an app called Unlocked to mm-hmm. be able to create more content for them oh, okay. and also, you know, to create more written material as well it's just been time yeah so this book here that you're looking at um mm-hmm. and it's a zigzag so it actually is double-sided oh um, very cool so okay. th- this is just Beautiful. one example oh, of a swatch book um and that gives the names wow. of various colors in japanese and this one's not particularly old this one's like er- early showa period so okay. it's probably like from i want to say maybe 30s 40s somewhere in there i was gonna say uh, these are amazingly <laughs> preserved yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very well preserved we liked this one because it is very well preserved and um, because color is such an important visual language in kimono we felt that it would be good to acquire a piece like that to be able to have that context of how the colors are named and there are some colors that are used in kimono that you don't see in the west very much Mm. or Um, even some colors that we technically don't really have names for like very specific Mm -hmm. shades of red or very very, specific shades of lavender or or what we sometimes call burple which is like <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how else to describe this color, but this so is, yeah. the front miwafu, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what does miwafu translate to? From what I understand, that's the salon that it came yeah. from. Oh, okay. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you were the one who yeah. bought that one. So the interesting thing about a lot of these books is that in the West, we're very used to like the cover of a book having like the title, the author, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a lot of the kimono books that we get, you're lucky. If they have, you know, the shop name or, you know, the district that it came from. Um, With some of the newer periodicals, you know, like this one, you know, we know where it came from because of this, thankfully. Yeah, this one has print in there, too, that I didn't translate before we got here. But then you have books like this one, which is a swatch book, and it is from a kimono shop. These are different fabric patterns. Um, in here. So, I believe on Chidiman specifically. Yeah, on, on um, Chidiman. And, and how old would you say that one is, Tara? That one's a Meiji period. So, book. is there so. any of these that are your favorites? Either swatch um, book or specific swatches? 
couple of the probably Whoa. probably that one. My we'll, we'll get to that one. Yeah. Because um, it's not just fabric swatches. Like the yeah. quality of this like paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all handmade paper. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the craftsmanship that goes into every little piece mm-hmm. of these books. The reason yeah. why I like the fabric sample books is because um, fabric swatch books have been a large part of Japanese textile history for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and starting in around the 1600s in the Edo period, as shops began to offer kimono for the merchant class, which was becoming more and more wealthy thanks to all the, the travels to and from Edo oh, that was required by the nobility, huge. the uh, fabric swatches became very um, important. And so you would have design books and you'd have swatch books. And then for the more common class, people would weave fabrics and put a swatch of it in a book and then pass that book along through the family so that each new wife that came along and was weaving the fabric would know patterns that had been used in the family textiles in generations before her. Very cool. So some some books can be very old. Yeah, that one's a nice one. That one's a a nice um, Meiji period. Just just looking at the printing on the back, the embossment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Terry, for those listening that may not be as familiar with the different age ranges. Meiji period would be um, 1868 to 1912. Wow. So yeah. Right um, so this one is this one goes back a little further. As you can see on one side, wow. this is an upcycled book. Mm-hmm. So this is on one side just woodblock printed mm-hmm. text, and then here it's all swatches. These are they're basically they're washi paper swatches, but they're oh, um, okay. used. They're they're swatches from katazome, which is stencil dyeing. So um, you'd have these very fine stencils that were used to create detailed patterns in the fabric, and then you would have the patterns replicated in this this paper so that people could see the various stencils. So this one's a, a bit older. This one's probably a Meiji period book, probably okay. a little bit earlier than the other one, though. It, we really liked that one because it shows how books were often upcycled to um, be used as swatch books. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and just overall, it speaks to the whole Japanese tradition of yeah, upcycling, using something to its best purpose. Mm-hmm. So the washi paper is used as examples of what yeah. they could do on kimono. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah. just a cheaper way to. Yeah. Basically, it, it was a way to show off the stencils, and you could paste that into the book, um, typically using rabbit skin glue. Yeah. yeah. This is amazingly detailed. Yes. Like, yeah. And the reason why the things kimono had um, very fine patterns like that is at a distance it would look like a solid color. Mm-hmm. At various points in time there were sumptuary laws that would dictate what kind of patterns people could or could not wear because oh. we didn't want those lower classes to start looking nicer oh, okay. than the local lord. It's, so uh, risk the samurai protecting the merchants <laughs> instead of a lot the of local lord. So, about, yeah, you know, status. Classes, oh yes, and 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 so you would still be within the spirit of the law, but not so much in the letter of the law Mm -hmm. because you still had this fine pattern Mm. in your kimono, so it was seen as a very classy thing to do. And that actually touches on something that has been a little bit of a soapbox for our business in some ways. I think when people look at kimono or even just hear the word kimono, there are certain ideas or assumptions or stereotypes that, you know, mm. people will have. And there are certain terms like, oh, national costume and oh, it's tradition. And, yeah. 
you know, all of these really very heavy, very weighted words that have their own kind of consequences to them that are brought about with it. And Mm -hmm. I don't think because a lot of different types of cultural education about Japan, especially around kimono, have not been available in the United States. You know, there hasn't really been a voice against that saying, no way, you know, just like with any fashion Fashion. around the world, things like commerce, politics, you know, people kind of meerkatting around like, oh, what's, you know, this prefecture doing over here? What are are the kabuki actors doing? doing? (laughs) What are are they wearing? And then when the ports opened up, oh, what's the West doing? Right. And before the ports closed down in the 1600s, before the Tokugawa era started, you know, oh, what's what we know as Korea today? doing what's what we know is china doing well, and having all of those things and kind india of, and india and especially. that's that's where this book comes in so there is actually a tremendous amount of influence from um, india and from europe even oh, wow. on japanese textiles not just china and korea so this book this is a little bit of a newer book as well but this gives oh, yeah. hand-painted oh, examples yeah. of textile designs that are based on indian designs, Mm. Indian fabric designs. Mm -hmm. So this is actually one of a three-book series. In one of the other books, there actually is a painting of um, someone from India, but this one has the best, like, Mm. the most colorful examples. I almost feel like this is my favorite. (laughs) This this one's a really nice one. The the paintings in there are very well done. This one, yeah. 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 You also get to see, one of the cool things you get to see about this is also Japanese bookbinding techniques, (laughs) which are really very different from Western ones. I, I watched a video yesterday about, because you mentioned the influence of uh, European mm-hmm. textiles on Japan. Yeah. And uh, I didn't realize that at, during World War II, once the, the fashion influence came in from the West, mm-hmm. that they started taking the kimono textiles and just moving them into different forms and different patterns, which even, I thought was really interesting. Even prior to World War II, that's why we brought it's some... It's funny that you say yeah, that. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Because we brought, we brought not some woodlocks. books, Ooh. but we brought some ukiyo-e that we have been collecting that actually show... Exactly what you're talking about. So this is a triptych. Wow. That, wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that is so cool. So for those of you who are listening, we will have pictures of this. It's a trifold painting of, or woodblock you said? Woodblock. Yes, woodblock. Trifold woodblock wow. showing kimono textiling in Victorian fashion patterns. And that that is Wallalita to the yeah, next yeah, level. Exactly. That is that so, is so cool. cool. Yeah. I'm going to pass this across to you here. We purchased that one specifically. We, we have a woodblock prints dealer that we purchase from sometimes when we go out there. And this is this is again another reason why we go to Japan because we want to acquire pieces like this that show great examples of Japanese fabrics being used in western style garments mm-hmm. and to show sort of what happened when Japan was more open to the world during the Meiji period. The empress at the time said if you were going to wear western style clothing or yohuku, it would be very good to incorporate Japanese made material in that process. So this triptych really illustrates that concept very nicely because you have what are clearly Japanese textiles incorporated into Western wear. Yeah, this is phenomenal. As someone indoctrinated into antiques, my Mm -hmm. parents built 
a Victorian house from the ground up. Love it. That and like that is a combination of two of my passions, uh-huh. like Victorian Edwardian and Japanese historical. That is absolutely amazing. Yes. Um, and another example here too, sort of the part steam of the, engine. Yeah, the steam wow. engine modernization that came about. You know, during the Meiji period, um, you can see you have Western style uniforms here. Mm-hmm. But yet, at the same time, you also have these wonderful chrysanthemums in the purple here. It, it's it's an interesting juxtaposition of the symbol of Japan, in a way, the chrysanthemum, yet incorporated with this embracing of modern technology. Oh, man. I am absolutely floored right now. Yeah. This is so cool. We we, we so got, we've got more fun getting this like stuff like together hands on museum. Like. Mm-hmm. That's our goal. That really is our goal. If you don't have access to wonderful places like you know, the Art Institute of Chicago or the Met on a regular Mm -hmm. basis, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be really hard to find and, you know, be able to handle and see beautiful examples of just Japanese history in general like Mm -hmm. this. Thankfully, since... You know, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago for grad school, and with some of the projects I worked on during that time, I got to work with people at the museum, being able to kind of take those lessons of their models of education. And we used to joke around in the art education department that Paulo Freire, who was an educator, um, was kind of like the mascot for the department, talking mm-hmm. about how you want education to be an exchange and not mm-hmm. just pouring information into, you know, a head like it was an empty vessel. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. more that you can get students to experience authentic materials, the more that they will have an appreciation of those materials. And we saw that in our own lives, mm-hmm. the way that our dad brought back kimono for us and when Sherry was in Japan for that first time experiencing Japan itself and also bringing back kimono Mm -hmm. as well. We really have that as a very important core belief that if our customers have the ability to experience authentic materials, then they will appreciate those materials and hopefully that will spark in them the desire to learn more. Mm-hmm. So it's and that was something that we told our partners out in Japan. This was this was our business model, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's a business model that really is centered on education and that was one of the things that they really liked because it's not just capitalism. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well it isn't, yeah. you know, and exactly. it, I mean it is and yet it isn't. And and that there's a higher purpose and yeah, there's different we're aspects. Doing. We're to on a mission. Yeah. So this piece here, this triptych shows. It's a play. It's a kabuki Her theater. Wings. And this is oh why we bought it. One of the actors has butterfly wings in the background of the kimono. And so we, we purchased this <laughs> one specifically because we really liked the butterfly wings there and we wanted to show how in theater people would do very interesting things with kimono and to incorporate them into costume. So there's sometimes people might say, well, is it really respectful to do say a Wonder Woman kimono cosplay is this something that is allowed or like a fairy princess or an angel inspired with the angel wings yeah and you'll have people will say you know it's culture not a costume and I understand that but at the same time if you look at kabuki theater you will see many ways in which 
kimono, which of course was everyday wear, just like a a dress would be everyday wear in the West, a ball Mm. gown might be turned into a costume on a stage. We're accustomed Mm. to that. Well, just substitute ball gown for kimono, and that's what it is in Japan. You know, the kimono is ultimately a thing to wear. Mm -hmm. That's what it translates to. And so you can see this example of making a costume with a kimono, and this is just part of theater. That's just how the play goes. Now, I want to see with this particular triptych if you guys (laughs) can spot the two things that just grabbed our eyeballs and practically ripped them out of our heads. Oh, God, we we loved this one. This this is a kabuki one. Why don't you pass it to them? Yeah, it's like a fight is happening. And on one side, I do see kind of a Napoleon esque figure. There's some American. Yes, flags. we have the flags, yeah, American mm-hmm. flags, and the lanterns, and American yeah. and Japanese yeah. lanterns. So the lanterns have the the round um, red insignia for Japan, and then a version of the American flag. The theatrical production being displayed in this print is actually a very comedic production that was created to basically explore and explain some of the upheaval at the time that was happening in Japan when they Perry, kind of threw open their doors and when yeah when Perry, oh, Perry came kind of in so that's, open that's their doors. Admiral Admiral Perry right Commodore, <laughs> Commodore no. Perry I'm sorry mm-hmm. and and yes yeah, so it was sort of a, a social commentary and a humorous commentary about hey you know this this American came and now everything is crazy mm-hmm. so here we are this crazy fighting world with we our live umbrellas in, in our yeah. shoes right yeah. exactly so um, this this is a comedy so we purchased this one because we really liked the fact that it was this intersection of Japan and the United States of course and also mm-hmm. because we wanted to show that sometimes people think oh Japan is very serious it's a very serious country um, slapstick is so popular but, there. yeah the, exactly. the sense that of humor true. there is a very profound very distinct sense of humor and so a piece like this illustrates that you know this this piece is over a hundred years old that humor was definitely there in poking fun at a major major occurrence in their yeah. country mm-hmm. it's like a political cartoon in a way yeah. in and, a way I'm, I'm seeing like tartan prints mm-hmm. on kimono yeah. and that, that is very, funny to yes, me yes and those those would be more commoners mm-hmm. um, because those would be typically hand woven um, what we would think of as plaid or as tartan and we, we in the States think, okay, that's Scotland, that's Scotland. Mm-hmm. And then when mm-hmm. we first started looking at kimono as kids, I was like, why are they doing all these Scottish prints on kimono? Yeah. <laughs> it's so wacky. <laughs> but um, actually, the, the plaid or the tartan kind of weave was very, very common in Japan. Okay, um, very, very interesting. And, and those, those fabric sample books that would get passed down in families, when you look through those, you'll see all of these different plaid-style weaves. And it was just ways that people would take natural dyes and dye some of the threads and then create these beautiful patterns with mm-hmm. them. Um, so that maybe their clothing wasn't boring. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, it was yeah. a way of decorating through weaving. Now, before we get to the next one, there is one other thing I wanted to say about this particular oh, trip yeah. deck. Yeah. And maybe this is just the, 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 the American thesis and Japanese part of me that, <laughs> you know, is, is has my heart dancing with this. But I really appreciate pieces like this because I feel like they're also very meta. Because yeah. you have to realize when Commodore Perry did originally, you know, kind of knock on Japan's doors with the threat of trade or be colonized, Japan did something really smart. You know, instead of freaking out and instead of going, oh God, you know, we have no plan for this, they 
I think, very quickly realized that one of the best ways to prevent themselves from being colonized, not just by the states, but by anybody else, because, hey, if they can knock on our doors, anybody else is going to Korea, China. Exactly. And they had already had contact with the Dutch. So they did something really smart, and they started making a very targeted effort to export as many parts of their culture as they could. Yeah. Because the overall thinking was, okay, only those who are seen as lesser, mm-hmm. only those who are seen as not as good as the colonizers in whatever way, those are the populations that historically get colonized. So if we make it seem like we have enough stuff going on in our country where we are on par with the colonizers, the rest of the world is not going to let them colonize us. I mean, that thinking is is very problematic in a yeah. lot of ways, yeah. obviously. Yeah. No, it's terrible that they had it, to think that way. But it's it was self-preservation. Exactly. Yeah. It was right. a strategy that worked for them. So they did things like making it a point to participate in the World's Fair in 1868. You know, they had mm-hmm. the Japanese pavilion. They brought kimono. They brought woodblock prints. They brought all of these things and they brought theater. So to have a a country and a culture that was closed off from the rest of the world for someone looking from the outside in to be like, I don't know anything about these people. What's going on? Oh, they have good food. They have good theater. I mean, in a way, it's almost like you're describing, you know, any of the other major cities in your own country. Like, they've got theater. They've got food. Mm -hmm. They've got culture. They've got a fashion industry. They've got a fashion industry. I want to learn about them. Rather than the, Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's going on here. So we're just going to kind of come in and get our fingers in here and make sense of this Yeah, we're just going to assume we're better than them. Exactly. And that we need to, you know, just go in and colonize. Yeah. But that that was a lot of stuff you don't understand. Exactly. Right, exactly. right. And and so many times, you know, because of colonization, folks were seen as other, you know, they were seen mm-hmm. as lesser, they were seen as, you know, not as cultured, not as as, as advanced, you mm-hmm. know, and it and nowadays we look at this and go, oh, my God, just what were <laughs> like we so thinking? Many yeah. like, yes. this so is many problems. So many problems. But I think because Japan had seen other countries being colonized, mm-hmm. they were kind of looking at, well, what the heck do we do? Yeah, they it's a, a very fast lesson. It's a very, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. so very to much. have so to have pieces that were made, you know, in the time that not just document what was going on, but also can serve as like political cartoon, like a mm-hmm. consumable to show. No, we have political satire too. Yeah, you know, just like you guys do. It it kind of serves multiple purposes in that sense. So it's and I it's think a it, really it, interesting piece. It also provides food for thought for Westerners who have historically typically been in the role of colonizers mm-hmm. to really think about it from the other perspective of a country that's looking around the world going, oh, God, (laughs) what's coming? Because we get told in our education system, you know, we have to think about the world around us and and how you know it's it's not just hey these white people are in charge you know that kind of thing like that that's mm-hmm. not a good way to look at the world but we don't always get that really visceral sense of what it was like to be one of the colonized countries or a country that was looking at potential colonization and just going and oh, the impending forces yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. sense of doom yeah. almost of how do we keep this from happening so mm-hmm. it, it provides a lot of food for thought it also yeah. like makes you think about like how they're reacting today because I know a lot of cultures are more like oh okay we're gonna like try to shield like I know with my culture with black culture it's more mm-hmm. like 
okay, we want to preserve our like culture、mm-hmm. that we made and kind of like keep that away from other people、mm-hmm. to keep it from being exploited. Right. Exactly. And then seeing like Japan's reaction to that sort of stuff, even today with J Fashion and stuff like、mm-hmm. Sebastian Matsuda being like, I want to like spread the culture of Kawaii and Kawaii fashion、mm-hmm. and things like that. And that's like. You know, two ways of like looking at how can you, how do you react to this?、Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it's a totally different way. And that's, I think, part of the reason why when we've been in Japan, we've been told over and over again that folks in, in Japan want the rest of the world to appreciate kimono、mm-hmm. and want to open up the world to kimono. And in fact, we were out there last time at a fashion show for Sheila Cliff, who is、um, a very prominent Westerner who lives in Japan and teaches kimono.、Um, she's the, the first British person to be a certified kitsuke instructor in Japan. And at her fashion show, The chairman of the festival that was going on, that incorporated the fashion show and many other events, came onto the stage. And, and I actually recorded his speech because I thought this is going to be really interesting. Because Sheila is a Westerner and some of her models are Westerners. Many of them are Japanese, but some of them are Westerners. We were in the audience and there were a few other Westerners in the audience. And the chairman said, With the 2020 Olympics coming up, we're going to have a lot of foreigners in Japan. We need to be always aware that we need to welcome foreigners. They're not going to know how we do things in Japan, and that's okay. We need to be patient with that. And we are going to see more and more Westerners becoming interested in Japanese cultural items like kimono. We need to welcome this.、Mm-hmm. We need to invite people to experience kimono. He was very strong about that and, and about how the Olympics are going to be another way, another wave. Of foreigners experiencing、mm-hmm. Japanese culture. Well, and the interesting、yeah. thing, too, not just his speech, but looking out at the reactions of everybody that was sitting in that audience. And there were a few hundred people. Yeah.、Like、it was a very well attended show. Yeah, it was part a well attended show. And pretty much every head in the audience. Was bobbing up and down, like, <laughs>、yeah. yes, like, I got you, I'm、yeah. with you, yeah, like, I agree joining with, with that, this. like, yeah, a joint mission.、Mm-hmm. Of, like, and that's like、yeah. something like in America, we're just more like, hmm, yeah, questioners, yeah. like, yeah.、Oh, well, yeah, because、exactly. you're saying it, yeah, yeah. part of it, I'm, I'm sorry, it's part yeah, of this so always、much. makes part of this is bringing up the Big dick energy meme in my head. <laughs> and like the cultural ambassadors of Japan are kind of staking their claim as opposed、mm-hmm. to like Kamila, you brought up with black culture. It's kind of like closed off. And I、mm-hmm. think that's due in part to that they didn't really have a choice. Right. They didn't have a say in it. Yeah, exactly. But Japan was fortunate enough to have a choice、yeah. in how their culture was consumed. Right. And they said, okay, we're going to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And this is going to make it the、mm-hmm. most culturally sensitive to ourselves and the best way to consume it by other people.、Yep. Right. And you know what? And I think that's why, when the whole idea of cultural appropriation comes up in conversation, I, I always end up feeling that kind of like, you know, like、mm-hmm. slam on the brakes, you know, right there for a second when people talk about cultural appropriation as just one thing. Like, oh, you're not allowed to do this because you're not. This and it's very, it's very narrow and it's very prescriptive. And I think that, yes, cultural appropriation is a bad thing. You know, we should not exploit 
any culture, any country, you know, anything that you do should be with a basis of respect. But I think the idea of what constitutes cultural appropriation, once you get beyond the whole idea of don't be a jerk, you know, don't Mm -hmm. be a jerk, you know, you can't steal something from another culture, claim it's yours, try to change it, be destructive with it. If, If we accept that that's a definition of what cultural appropriation is, from there, you have to look a little bit deeper and a little bit more critically into what that intentionality is. You know, so cultural Mm -hmm. appropriation in terms of a black experience is going to be very different different and played by a very different set of rules than what it would for a Japanese experience or a Chinese experience or a Russian experience or Mm -hmm. really any other country around the globe. So and I think that while we may be getting there as a Western society here in the States in some ways when it comes to it, like we've already hit that plateau of cultural appropriation, bad, bad wrong, right, right. Yeah. but you know, now that we're there, we got to th- figure out the nuances. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. You know, right. we need to not be looking at this in an infantile way where cultural appropriation is the boogeyman under the bed that's going to jump out at you if, you know, wear flip flops or eat a taco. You know, <laughs> we need to start looking at what the shades of that are so that we can be respectful of all the different cultures that we do want to learn about and, you know, maybe incorporate meaningfully into our lives, but Mm -hmm. in a very respectful and understandable way. And if you guys are interested in this subject more, we are actually going to be talking with Sherry and Terry after this for our patron content about cultural (laughs) cultural appropriation and kimono, what it is, what it's not. Um, So if you guys are interested, please join our Patreon become a $3 tier subscriber and you will Mm -hmm. get that content as soon as it's edited. Yay! All right. So what else did you bring for us? Okay. This is a triptych of a kimono shop. Wow. Yes. Okay. So yes. I'm is... seeing the little pieces now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a very detailed um, wood block, and it's basically detailing the the process of people selecting and seeing the the shop selections of kimono. So I'll. And one of my favorite details about it that even didn't hit us at first because mm-hmm. we were very over, like happily overwhelmed when we saw it. It's yeah. a lot. But it's a if, lot. If yeah. you look along the top, those are actually kimono patterns and notes for the actual construction oh. of the garment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. just like how sometimes we do in, you know, Western cartoons and other illustrations, you know, sometimes we'll have specific little details popped mm-hmm. up, you know, in the margins or along the top yeah. or along it's the like bottom of It's like an infographic. Images. Exactly. It's like mm-hmm. art meets graphic art. And that's yeah. something that ukiyo kind of naturally does a lot of in a really, really interesting way. I think my favorite, too, is the lady playing with the cat. Yep. That's me. Yep. <laughs> and this gal over here with the really bomb-ass hairstyle. Yep. Oh, yeah, that that like shaved, that. that's yeah. those shaved sides. Key. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. I like how much detail there are, like um, an ability to like tell a story and see Mm -hmm. how people are interacting together. That's like a theme I'm seeing in all Mm -hmm. these triptychs. You can see the genesis of manga in Mm. the woodblock prints because that's where manga really originated from these woodblocks. Well, Hokusai, he was so, I mean, everybody knows, uh, if if you studied anything about Japanese art, you know, Hokusai on his manga with all the doodles and illustrations. What they may not know is that he had, what was it, something over 30 different names that he went by throughout his artistic career. And there are literally hundreds of things that he did. And I I believe, I, I may be wrong here. If I am, I apologize to the art world. But I believe there are even 
some pieces that are still, they're trying to figure out if he's the one that did them or if it's people that were modeling after him. Mm, Um, Which happens so much with incredible artists. Well, yeah, exactly. All over the world. But, you know, the whole idea that, you know, these, these sketches and these woodblock prints and, you know, this form of art can be both very commercial as well as high art, as well as political commentary, as well yeah. as a, just a conversation starter. And speaking of um, commercialism, that's basically an ad for Oh, Kimono. okay. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just, uh, it's like a woodblock prints. Kind of like a catalog. Sort of like, yeah, like mm-hmm. a mini catalog. And I'm seeing little pieces of Western inspiration in here as well. You yep. have the guy at the top, which very Western in trousers yep. Yep. and a sash, mm-hmm. but also some of these people are wearing Western style scarves. Mm-hmm. All of it is just really interesting. Yep. That's a Meiji period piece and that makes sense because that you had this intersection mm-hmm. of Western culture in Japan. There are even coats designed to look like sort of like duster coats that could still fit over kimono sleeves. Oh, okay. Um, That's really Yeah, neat. so it looks call it we have one that was called our Sherlock Holmes coat because it basically <laughs> looks like that. Only you could wear it with kimono because of the way the sleeves are cut. That's so, so neat. Yeah. So one of the things that was also used in um, kimono shops were design books. And so these design books, they're sometimes called hinagata bon. This one is for Obi, for example. And a lot of these books were very, very finely drawn or painted books. There's one in particular that has Ooh. a skull on it. It's calling and to my goth side. I, right? <laughs> and so that's... how you're dressed today. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, this, this type of obi design really illustrates how kimono and obi are often seen as this very serious thing and yet and that's upside down but but there's the skull wow yeah and yet you have these really interesting um sometimes physiological um motifs that come up Mm. in kimono it's it's um kimono were in many ways a reflection of people's daily lives and so you would have designs that incorporate lots of themes from nature and lots of themes from just the world around them so this is probably our favorite Mm -hmm. this is a book of kimono designs um that one is Meiji period, and so those designs are all hand-painted. And I know a little bit more than the average person about kimono, and I'm noticing the, um, the family crests mm-hmm. up at the top, which They're, increases mm-hmm. the formality. Yes, yes, exactly. So you'll see three mon, um, because you're usually looking at the backside, and then there would presumably be two in front for the most formal. Thank you, Kawaii to Kimono. I was on that panel as well. Right. And that definitely helped my knowledge a bit. And now my parents think I'm a freaking genius. Oh, well, that's great. Hey, it works. Education works. I I found some Kuro Furisode in uh, Antique Mall in California. I'm like, I know what that is. That's for the the mom of the husband. She wears this, and that's what this means. And my parents are like, wow, you're a genius. I'm like, not really, but thanks. (laughs) So this is one of the efforts that we have. This is a book that we have slated to be translated. Um, Oh, very cool. And so this is a book of patterns and instructions for how to sew various types of 
wafuku. There's also some common motifs and patterns in, sprinkled throughout. And so there's measurements. There's a lot of math in these books. Mm-hmm. This particular um, three-volume set is actually registered in the National Diet Library in Japan. Wow. As well. There so. are very few copies of this still in existence, and these copies are in fantastic shape. As you can probably see from the second book here, there's actually a lot of math um, <laughs> in, in lot. this one. And it's it's just it's also very interesting to see how that math is portrayed. <laughs> In, it's uh, sideways oh. in, the, in the book yeah. with a combination of Arabic numerals and kanji. Yeah. And so you'd have to, um, this is why we want to get the whole thing translated, um, because <laughs> there's a lot of information packed into these pages that um, pertains to some of the patterns that are in the other books. And being able to show people how these pieces were created is very interesting from a historical standpoint and hopefully should help people who want to recreate Mm -hmm. um, kimono to do so in a more historically accurate way. There's even examples of knots. I think that first book is the one that has the collar wood block print. If you look at the very beginning of that book, yes, I tell you, we always always lose that page. (laughs) It's just sort of buried in there. But it's a lovely color woodblock. So since you had asked about secrets, this is kind of one of the, uh, shall we say, open secrets that we have. Since, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, we have been making it more of a move to try to make some of our educational materials more accessible. Mm -hmm. This is one of our quote unquote secret projects that we've been working on is making sure that we have the resources at hand. Because I don't know about you, but I can't read 200 year old kanji. No. (laughs) And a lot of older kimono terms are for kanji, you know, are, are written with with kanji that have not been used for a very, very long time. Yeah. So we've been trying to partner with the right resources so that, you know, any translation of materials that we do is as accurate as can possibly be mm-hmm. because we kind of have the attitude of, you know, go big or go home. Yeah, <laughs> if you're yeah. going to do it, do it right the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do want to have a kind of compendium of you know, straight from Japan, this is how they do it. This is how they did it and make those materials accessible in English um, for people who maybe don't have the access to learning Japanese or Japanese language courses Mm -hmm. or who, you know, maybe if you have things like dyslexia and it would be a little Mm -hmm. bit hard to read kanji, Mm -hmm. you know, this way maybe you have easier access to that information. And if you have the math, you can modify it to fit your Mm -hmm. size because size is definitely a challenge for non-Japanese because, of course, these weren't designed for white Westerners. (laughs) Big shock, right? Um, And so sometimes kimono can be a struggle to fit for people of various body types. And so um, we want to be able to take authentic math and make sure that people can use it in their context of their own bodies. Well, and whether that context is for body size or for ability or disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another particular soapbox of mine, just as a small tangent, not a ton of people on the convention circuit know this, but I actually spent about seven years of my life in a wheelchair. And I wore kimono, I wore yukata when I was in the wheelchair because, I mean, hey, why not? It's a thing to wear. You right. shouldn't be restricted from what you can or can't wear just because your legs may not work the same way that everybody else's does. So in in making materials and concepts and ideas available and accessible to people. It's not just, oh, hey, you can't speak Japanese, so here it is in English. It's if you have a, 
you know, a challenge in your life, regardless of what your level of ability or disability is, mm-hmm. no matter what your body type is, you know, whatever your situation. This should be accessible. Yeah. We're trying to hit that word accessible in from many, many different directions and not mm-hmm. just a straight translation and like, okay, here you go. Mm -hmm, So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can easily see this is taking off of what I've seen at previous conventions and exhibit halls. I could easily see so many of these pieces like taking up an entire room at a convention center in glass cases and people would be so interested. I, this is something, this is so cool. I am having so much fun with this. Sometimes you don't get so much like historical Japanese culture at conventions. Like, all of it's about, like, the anime characters. Exactly. Or if you do, that it's so dry. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But so much of what you see in anime is based on all of this stuff. Right. So it's like, how do you understand the anime unless you have the right cultural context? But in America, we don't teach about Japan. You know, Mm. we really don't. Oh, God. It was like, there's, um... You guys don't need gloves for this book. These are more modern reproductions. But this this book series here, um, this is just one of the book series that we've used in in TV. Teaching, um, and I would like to use for some upcoming programs as well. This is a, a reproduction of Edo period kimono designs. So this would be a book of designs that would be used at like a store, like a department store or kimono shop. And so there are there are lots and lots of these books that are done just plain woodblock, you know, no color, um, but they illustrate lots of different potential motifs. And the reason why I like these books is because they they help to provide a great visual lexicon of Japanese motifs and sometimes how these motifs can be modified or adapted or fit together, almost like puzzle pieces in a way, to maybe provide a message of auspiciousness, maybe to provide a message of, you know, this is something for a wedding, this is something for protection, this is, uh, you know, so some of these motifs have different meanings and also different seasonality. Also, I like them because, like, this one, for example, has boats in it. You know, boats are an everyday thing. If you're in uh, an island country, boats are, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're on the coastline, that's a pretty important part of your life. Mm -hmm. And so I like to encourage people to say, well, you know, this is what was important in Edo, okay, in this time period, but what is important to us now? Well, who says you can't put a smartphone on a kimono, (laughs) you know? Who's to say that you can't put a video game controller on an obi, you know, a picture of this, a picture of that? What is important to you? like prints for Lolita Mm -hmm. dresses Mm -hmm. and how it's just like based around this one theme of just like strawberries are cute. Yeah. And pleasing and sweet. Yep. And, and then you have the joke prints that are literally yeah, memes. memes. Yeah, memes. Mm-hmm. Things like that. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It blows my mind. Yeah, and then that is based on this idea that kimono would reflect in you know scenes out of life. This one, for example, has a village scene. It's a seaside village, and there's a boat in the water. And so that's just a slice of life. Um, and so we in the West might sort of immortalize this or romanticize it and say, oh, this is, this is so beautiful and everything. And maybe because we've been looking at kimono for so long, we, mm-hmm. we've been able to kind of move towards looking at it as, okay, this is a slice of life. Mm-hmm. This is an everyday object. You know, this ladle right here, and this is an everyday object. Yeah, it's no longer like exotic. Right, exactly. exactly. And it that, takes it out and, of that otherness. And Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's another major goal that we have is to, and especially through education like this, is to try to take away some of that otherness and some of that exoticism mm-hmm. and say, okay, guys, this, this is this is an important country in the world. Right. It's not. They're not like the 
this other country. They're part of our world. They're a major ally of the United States. Like, we shouldn't treat Japan as sort of like this untouchable land or kimono as this、mm. untouchable item. This was a thing to wear, and people put things on their kimono that reflected their everyday life. It's not so different than how things might have been done in the States. You、mm. know, maybe we didn't、That's、put. Very much. Yeah. Reminds me of like when we were interviewing Chum、mm-hmm. and she was talking about how the alternative fashion scene here like views like everyone who wears alternative fashion in Japan like, oh my gosh, they're like on a other level、right. and like will never be as good as them. And、right. like, and then there they really like what we do with our、mm-hmm. alternative fashion too. Yep. And it, are inspired by us as well.、Mm-hmm. And also just look at it as clothing and like they're just、yeah. people wearing clothes. And、mm-hmm. making art and things like that. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, rather than viewing them as like, oh, they're like on, on a pedestal. Really high pedestal. It's just like exchanging ideas and things like that. Exactly.、Yeah. It, uh, ultimately, when you come down to it,、um, and really it goes even back to like the French Impressionists and Japanese art, where it's just when, when you break everything down, ultimately, since we are. A very global society. Once you dig deep enough, you start to realize more and more just how much we're not really looking at an other, but how much we're kind of looking into a mirror. And and it's a lot of reflection of so many different aspects of you know cultural exchange that kind of end up coming to the surface of that mirror. So ultimately, we're all just looking at ourselves. We're all human. Yeah, you know? we're all he- the core concepts、people. are all the same. The execution may be slightly different, but to put any one country or culture on a Pedestal and be like, this is this, and and kind of immortalize it that way. I think is honestly kind of the greatest disrespect for it because once you start to put something on a pedestal and make it untouchable, you're othering it. That's when you're、mm-hmm. othering it. That's when the education stops. That's when you're making it such a highly esteemed thing that you know, no matter how much you look at it and how much you study it, you can never understand it.、Yeah. And、uh, to me, I think that's the greatest disrespect that、yeah. you can show another country and culture because once you stop trying to understand it. What's the point?、Mm-hmm. You know, right, right, and、yeah. it's a it's a matter of context as well, where、mm-hmm. we're seeing similar concepts in kimono that we have in our clothing,、uh, especially even vintage, but it's just a different context of、mm-hmm. what it was. We have similar boat motifs、mm-hmm. in our fashion as well. People、yeah. who live on the coast are like they're into yachts, yeah, and the ship、mm-hmm. wheels, yes, and the anchors, exactly and things like that. Yeah, that's true.、Um, it's just it's the same but different. Yep, yep, yep.、Right. Exactly, just a different way of representing the、yep. same concept. You、mm-hmm. know, nautical themes. Cool. We do that too. Kind of going back to some of your earlier questions about like step one.、Mm-hmm. Step one for us, aside from just you know get into some cons, bring some kimono, and see how this goes.、Um, but one of the things that we really wanted to make sure right away was that first of all we were able to reflect the same welcoming spirit that Sherry experienced from so many people in Japan,、yeah. where you know customers are not treated as other. Customers are not treated as a bother, and customers are not treated as somebody who's just so ignorant that they can never appreciate、mm. what you have. Customers are welcome. You know they're called. Kyakusan, which means honored guest. So that honored guest idea was something that we had very early on. That we just insisted this is how we wanted to do things. And then on top of that, we also wanted to make sure that we were never putting kimono on this grand pedestal. That even no matter how old the piece was, no matter how exotic it was, no matter how you know different and unusual it was, because there are unusual kimono. We、mm-hmm. have some pieces where I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> I have only seen this motif once before. Or in a Book. 
Or we see kimono hacks where people like do things in Japan to make it, <laughs> to easier, make it easier to wear kimono. For themselves to and wear. you're we holding up this Franken mono and going, what the heck? What do they do? What do they do? This doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay, you put it on and then it starts to make sense. Um, you know, we really wanted to make sure that we were not putting kimono on a pedestal because we don't want kimono to be othered. We want kimono to be something that is, that is this is clothing, ultimately. It's just clothing. And it should be clothing that is welcome, especially in a society that is as diverse as ours. Kimono mm. should be welcome here. There should be no reason why you can't walk down the street in a kimono. We're, mm. we're supposed to be a multicultural society. You know, mm. come on here. Yeah. <laughs> we're a very diverse country, so we should welcome this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway. So box, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's true. It's, and it, it, yeah. it's, I'll cover that I think, in the cultural I, preparation I think, I think yeah, the, that, that, that was yeah. a big yeah, part of us getting that. from step one to step two in the States because mm. our approach to kimono was radically different than anything anybody had ever seen before. People had seen kimono as this big other thing, this thing on a pedestal. You know, there were forums that were devoted to kimono in which people were basically saying, you will never be good enough to actually wear this kind of thing. Or you you can do this kitsuke, but your kitsuke is never going to be perfect. And we're going, hang on a second, what about wabi-sabi? What, what about the concept of imperfection is a part of life? It's a part of the process. Mm-hmm. It's part of the beauty of what's going on here. And when you, when you look at books like Felice Beato's books, Felice Beato's photos, um, like this one, for example, there are photos of people wearing kimono from more than 100 years ago. And you look at them and go, well, this kitsuke isn't perfect. Oh, I mean, this yes. is clearly a thing to wear. It was just a, a thing. And you know? because we don't know too much about it, we can't even study it right. in a way right. that, where you be able so to it becomes see how they're an it. other yeah. thing because we don't have that educational experience and that is a crying shame. It it really um, bothers me because we're still treating East Asia as the other mm-hmm. and we are a, a, an international we're, we're in a global world so we can't afford to see countries like Japan as other. You know, these are our allies. These are our friends. We need our friends. Just to back it up here for a quick second, for anybody listening who doesn't know or isn't familiar, Felice Beato was a photographer that was one of the first to kind of go into Japan after its doors were open to the world. And he along with a whole lot of other people, um, some that he worked with, others that just happened to go around the same time, wanted to go and kind of document what this country and culture was all about. And they started documenting people in their everyday lives. Um, You know, some photos are staged because, you know, it happens. But there are others where, you know, just people walking along the streets to go to the market, they would take photos of. One of my favorite photos that I have of Felice Beatos, it's actually opened on this page, shows an older Japanese woman wearing her kimono. And there, there are modern forms that if you were to go on right now and wearing it this way yeah if you were to make this look like it were a modern woman wearing a kimono it would be like the kimono police (laughs) descending (laughs) like she's not wearing a juban her front isn't cinched up to her neck she's wearing a nagoya obi but doesn't have an obiage where's her obi You know, isn't it funny how the police <laughs> exist wherever you have something that's put up on a pedestal? Yeah. And yeah. that was a big, big thing that we were like, we, we do not want to be the kimono police. That is not our job. Well, and it's interesting, too, because when we first came onto the circuit, too, there are other kimono vendors that do exist that are out there. Um, some that we're very friendly with, some that we wholesale to, and others. And one of the 
interesting things was not just combating, you know, overarching stereotypes for kimono, but even some of the ideas that other kimono vendors had put out there. Like, if you were to wear a kimono without a juban, you're doing it wrong, and mm-hmm. you shouldn't even be in this building, and get out of my booth, and you're not welcome, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, thoughts like that, where with us, we're like, no, Japan is a subtropical climate. You know, there, there are people there that will fake a juban, and will just not We've wear seen it. it. We've <laughs> seen it. I've been back and forth 17 times now. I've seen it. Like, they do mm. this. If it's good enough for them, and if it's in the middle of a really hot summer here, and oh, if God. you don't want to wear a juban, I'm not going to throw shade on you for no. it. Wow. Yeah, wow. You, this you is can, like really you can great. See like this material. is a more of a 1960s, 1970s version, but here we have someone from the 1930s. You have the obi is tied differently. You have a different sleeve length here. You have the collar of the juban is you know this is a very starched white, very mm. pristine kind of look. Sometimes called the samurai wife look, and it's very <laughs> small. And it's there's only yeah, a small amount of, of it of collar showing visible. compared to. Compared to even further back in history, where, where when you look at Juban, if she were to go around and wear he com- her kimono like that without a Juban underneath, she would essentially be flashing someone. You yeah. know? So there was a lot more of the a Juban or more the color showing. showing. You know, if it was worn at all. Yeah, whereas this is a very buttoned up kind of look. And so it's this kind of example that I use when people start to say, well, there's only one way to wear kimono. And I say, oh, really? (laughs) Tell me about that, because that's not how it was done in Japan. It's almost as if the rules have gotten a bit more stricter over the years just Mm -hmm. to preserve what they thought it was looking back mm-hmm. through in hindsight exactly. in some circles yes I, I feel i feel a lot like and i'm gonna show my nerdiness here and i apologize <laughs> for that but i feel like kimono is a lot like star wars mm-hmm. where you have you know the original trilogy and so many people loved it and then you mm-hmm. had the three that came after that are almost like the three that shall not be named you know right. with the whole jar jar bings true. say what you will about them some people love them some people hate them but then there's the new generation of fans that are like well that wasn't star wars mm-hmm. you know we're gonna go back yeah. to what we feel star wars was or the last Jedi isn't Star Wars. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like, you know, to kind of make women it more... doing things. <laughs> exactly. That we can't have it's very that. purist. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, to like, bring it to an American kind of understanding yeah. of it, it's kind of like that. Yeah. I, I felt like that with like Ghostbusters, how people like hold like the old Ghostbusters on this like huge pedestal. And I'm just like, I'm looking at the movie, I'm just like, it's just as silly and not as good exactly. put together as these other movies. It's just that the, it was the past and it was just a great memory for you in that moment. Exactly. But remaking the movie, it's the same. It's like you need to take off the nostalgia glasses yes. and look at it for what, what it actually it is. is. Yes, yes. Yeah. we can have women as Ghostbusters. <laughs> we can have a black woman as a Ghostbuster. It's okay. The universe is not going to end here. Yes. It doesn't take away the beautiful nostalgia you have. It just yeah. gives something new for people to appreciate. It's so. not like the new one's corny and the old one, like the old one was really corny. Yeah, it was corny. <laughs> It's the yeah. same. <laughs> yep. So yep. we brought some textiles to look at, too. Before we move on to a couple like newer things, we did bring some text- textiles. So this is a Meiji period holiday jacket to give an illustration of um, some of the embroidery of the time here. This, this is a particularly fabulous example. Um, and I also like it because the bone here in the back is a butterfly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you can, you can see the little sparkles in between. Yeah. 
This is phenomenal. Picture of that. And one of the differences, one of the ways that we know it was Meiji period is that the mon are bigger than in modern kimono. So mm-hmm. it's one of our tells to, to age and to date kimono. And that's another thing that I always like like yeah. to illustrate for people because I'll take a look at something about, hey, that's like mid Meiji, you know, mm-hmm. mid Taisho. That's that's early Showa, whatever. You know, and I'm talking about things like from around the turn of the century. And I'll have some people look at me, how can you just tell that by looking? I'm like, well, when you look at enough kimono, and you see all of the changes throughout history, you can use those changes to help date mm-hmm. a piece. I mean, it's like with any kind of fashion, mm-hmm. after studying like Lolita fashion yep. for a long time, you can look at an OTT coordinate, OTT suite, and you're like, oh, that's like early 2000s. Yeah. Right. Because we just know the trends this at this point. This one's late 90s, and this like, one, It was yeah. this print, mm-hmm. this yep. brand. Exactly. Just yep. knowing the trends. Same same kind of concept, and that's why I also laugh when people are like, well, there's only one way to wear kimono. Ha ha. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you tell me that. But one more. Yes. So, oh my oh goodness, my <laughs> that is so. Oh, okay. It just reminds me of those grandpa button ups that yep. your that your weird grandpa it also wears to holidays. Makes me think of like the black and white films about like the town of tomorrow or mm-hmm. something. This is a patchwork juban. So patchwork juban or something that were created. A lot of times, people would take different fabrics from different pieces and use them to cobble together a juban because fabric was precious. And and in the culture of fabric being a scarce resource, um, you want to reuse fabric as much as possible. So many times Juban have um, different pieces of fabric with them. So this piece at the top here has this wonderful steam engine and then this bird and then some hunting dogs. So that's cool. And then this fabric here is more of an Indian influence. You've got your chariot being drawn by the horse. Little guy is inside the chariot. Yeah. So this this one has a lot more of an Indian flair to it. And then the bottom piece is, is, you might recognize some stuff on. You might recognize <laughs> the buildings on here and the planes. This piece is a World War II oh. era piece showing Japanese planes over New York City. That is so funny. So, yeah, so this one and is... you also um, have little hints of the American flag with in the these stars, stars, stars against the, the blue background here. So, World War II era textiles are the subject of many books, actually, because they really reflect a sense of what the war was like and and people's perspective of the war in Japan. Mm -hmm. And that's a perspective that we really don't get a lot of in the States, especially when we were kids and we still had a lot of World War II survivors who were alive and and telling Mm -hmm. us stories about World War II. We didn't get a lot of that perspective from the Japanese side. Mm, so right. it's it's pieces like this that we've been actively seeking. And, and this one actually just kind of fell into our laps. So we, yeah. were, we were really excited to get this one. And I feel um, like um, as, as far as I'm aware, I, I could be wrong, but as far as my personal knowledge goes, I don't know of many other people that do deal in kimono here in the States other than, you know, museums mm-hmm. that do actively look for pieces like this because... I mean, you say World War II, it's a subject that, Mm, you know, is very contentious. Yeah, exactly. It's contentious and it can be uncomfortable. Or even to talk about like, oh, so what does this print mean? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And like, you know, for us, you know, full disclosure with our history, like our grandfather was um, in the Navy and he was in Japan Japan during World War II. Mm. You know, he was there actually very shortly after the bombs fell. We have 
a connection to that, but then we also have the connection to, for example, there is a gentleman that I'm friends with. Uh, he was the consul general of Japan here at Chicago. He went on to be an ambassador for Japan. He's retired now. And the the very few times that it would come up in conversation, you know, he had more of the attitude of, well, it was a war between our governments, not our people, you know. Mm-hmm. So everyone is going to have a different perspective and relation to it, the way that we see it, it's not our job to make a stance on that, but to ignore part of the textile history of it would be to deny a part of history that is important to understanding you know, regardless of what the subject matter is, just I mean, like with these art. are, let's be real, mm-hmm. these are war planes, Japanese war planes over, over New York, New York City. Yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're not out to collect and to help provide resources for only the things that are comfortable. If, if you if you only share the parts of history that are comfortable, then or you're doing pretty or, pretty or cherry blossoms, then right. that's it. Then you're kind of dooming yourself to repeat those parts of history. Definitely. So, you know, that's why we wanted to bring a piece like this to show that, you know, regardless of what the actual actions of that part of history are, it was represented in textile, just like it mm-hmm. was represented in art. And, you know, is it yeah. very laden with context? Yes. Is it problematic at times? Absolutely. But you can't mm-hmm. deny that it's a part of that history, so it should be documented and preserved and shared with others so that they can understand that, you know, kimono are definitely not just cherry pink blossoms. Cherry blossoms. Right. <laughs> you know, there is a much deeper history to And them. I think putting those, the kind of context where it's like, oh, we're just going to ignore that entire section mm-hmm. of kimono history, that also plays into the purest acts- aspect. Yes. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. So that's, we are trying to avoid You've, you've got to take your history warts and all. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you cannot just gloss over difficult time periods. It's not doing anybody any, any service. Yeah, any good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the newer pieces that you have for us? All right. Well, some of these pieces may look familiar to uh, you guys. So um, something that is, uh, I think, pretty well known by now. Um, We are actually friends with uh, Rima Doi, who is the designer for ACDC Rag. Really cool dude. Really amazing brand. so cool. He's amazing. And I love that he immortalizes his fur babies (laughs) and his cats on his works. That just brings warmth to my heart. The piece that we're spreading on the table right now is actually, the construction of it is modeled on a howdy jacket. It's a type of kimono jacket where you have the drop sleeves. Kind of looks like the top half of a kimono. Mm-hmm. Um, when we explain them at the booth, we tell people, think of it kind of like a kimono cardigan or a kimono blazer. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, they would be worn with kimono, but it's actually very fashionable to wear them with Western clothing, both in Japan and now here in the States. It's really caught on to. One of the garments of one of his newer lines that he created is um, a line of howdy. The particular one we're looking at is is actually a modification of an old school samurai woodblock print but rather than just having it on like the parchmenty background he's got you know pink polka dots pink polka dots <laughs> candy yeah. goodo unicorns i think there might be some strawberries here strawberries yeah. here's your yeah. strawberries yes. right there yeah, exactly <laughs> Bows. And, and it's all done in like the pastel you know pinks blues purples right. you know very very colorful print exactly taking you know something that is you know very old and traditional and mm-hmm. breathing some new life into it to create a really 
awesome and yet still authentic kind of street fashion style. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we started seeing some of the stuff that ACDC Rag has been doing, I mean, they've been around for years. They've been around for like 30 years now. Yeah, even before Rima. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and that business is a family business too. So it's just seeing kind of the progression of their company and, and the things that they're making and the things that they're doing. Once we started to see, especially like the haori and the modern kimono mm. or the modern yukata. Yeah, I'd like to see like, you know, like before Rima, what was ACDC Rags fashion and things like that. Like, because it's... If you troll the internet hard enough, you can find examples. It's kind of hard mm. on the American internet. If you go yeah. to like, you know, Japanese Google, you can find it. But, you know, while it was a really awesome and strong company before, I really like the things that Rima is doing with it to push mm-hmm. it forward and to push, you know, uniquely yeah. Japanese street fashion forward. When I spoke to Rima, he talked about like basically accessibility and just like wanting ACDC rag to be like affordable for like everyone to get involved in um, street fashion because if we make it so expensive that not everyone could be involved or it's a lot to risk on something you don't mm-hmm. know whether you will like or not or he wants to like push forward Harajuku fashion exactly. you know not have it die as everyone is thinking that's gonna happen exactly and there's that keyword again accessibility yeah. yeah, so we're there, very like-minded. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a lot that we we get along very well. <laughs> when you when you walk down the streets in Harajuku, you will see he's got three stores. Yeah, they're bustling. Mm-hmm. They're oh God, they yes. are crammed and they are bustling. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk into some stores in, in Harajuku and you just get sticker shock. I, I mean, you're mm-hmm. seeing five hundred dollars for a coat and three hundred dollars for a skirt and two hundred fifty for a pair of shoes. It makes you question the difference between street fashion and high fashion. Yeah, mm-hmm. Quite yeah. A bit. And then you walk into Rima shops, and this is I want to say sixty five. 100 yen. Something like that. 55, 65, something like that. Or, yeah, 5,500 or something like that. I'm not sure. This is the piece that we're holding out right now is a modern yukata. Um, Again, calling out to my goth side. I know, right? Right? You know, it's, it's a kimono garment in a sense, but it has belt loops. It has pockets. Mm-hmm. It has pockets that can fit pockets. an American smartphone yeah. and not yeah. just a Japanese handy phone. Yes. So um, it your has, Samsung will fit. It yes. has men's style sleeves, but it is considered unisex. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. meaning that the sleeves are closed at the armpit, which is traditionally done for men's oh, kimono. Okay. Um, but it is it is definitely sold as unisex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, the material is very like breathable. Silky. Yeah, it's it's this it's this like awesome kind of shiny almost it's got like a sheen to it polyester and um, which means hold your breath kimono police but it's washable washable. (laughs) you can put this in the washer and you'll be able to wear it afterwards um and and there's clutch my pearls yes (laughs) let me find my pearls first um and he's and he's also got again the samurai print going up against a tiger here and then in the background there are ukiyo-e skulls but there's also if you look really closely there's also like other little traditional japanese motifs that have been taken from you know presumably other woodblock prints as well Mm -hmm. so it's it's the same the the line art is the same as the kind of kandigoro example that we see in the haori but it's a different imagining of the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I I really appreciate in his fashion that he's not 
just doing what we would consider street fashion to be with, you know, just hoodies or just skirts mm-hmm. or just mm-hmm. leggings. But being able to turn a little bit of traditional, with massive air quotes, kimono history on its ear a little bit mm-hmm. to imagine, okay, well, why can't we make this street fashion again? You know, it was everyday fashion. It was mm-hmm. street right, fashion. Whether it was his intentionality to do so or not, we've been finding for our sales here in the States as we've been bringing these things to the States, his brand and what he's doing with these particular lines of garments are helping to naturally break down some of those, you know, very tightly held onto stereotypes mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, I can wear this in the street. Like, people aren't going to look at me funny. Like, this is just mm-hmm. a garment that I, I can, can wear. wear. Yeah, I can wear a traditional obi with this, or mm-hmm. I could just wear it open as a long jacket. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to point out that the word meow is here. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, you have this tiger here, yeah. and then this sort of ribbon-like sash coming I mean, off ACC of the samurai. got to put a cat Meow. you got to have a cat. you got to have a cat somewhere in here. But see, there again, it's reflecting things that are important to people in this time period mm-hmm. and that is something that has been done throughout Japanese history so don't tell me that's not tradition this mm-hmm. is tradition it's just this is how we're doing it today that's how they did it then don't other our tradition don't other their tradition this is this is just totally in line with what Japan has been doing for hundreds mm-hmm. of years it's just mm-hmm. you gotta it's a different context yep same concept just different context different context so this is a lot to take in. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we brought a lot. We brought a lot. No, when it's I told so you fun. we had pages of this, we weren't <laughs> yeah, kidding. Yeah, no, we weren't kidding. Oh, so this kind of flows into our, our next question for you. I know yeah. we've only covered two so two, far. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's we so talk fun. A lot. We talk a lot. Um, what can you tell us about your project pertaining to the combination of Wafuku and J-Fashion? Well, we have been looking around in Japan and we've come across magazines like Kimono Hime in which we're seeing lots of graphic prints, we're seeing old kimono worn in interesting ways. This is a juban at the bottom and a kimono and a haori and you can see the collar is different and so we're mm. we're seeing a lot of things like this with very interesting use of vintage pieces. A lot of Taisho period influences which is very bright, very bold, very graphic. We're also seeing lots and lots of color and sometimes the romanticiz- uh, romanticizing, romanticization, mm-hmm. if that's the right word, um, of motifs that have been used in the past. So there's that one. There's also magazines like this issue of Kimono Hime, in which you're seeing, again, bold, bold prints and people taking older pieces and turning them into new ideas, new styles, you know, interesting hair pieces. This is something that we've been doing for a few years now. Mm. We have our own line of hair pieces. These are modeled after things that we have seen done in Japan. Um, We have a professional flower designer, you know, on hand at our studio. We've been doing this one, this for years. And then we're seeing that accessories are becoming more and more a statement for the way that kimono are worn. So we're seeing all kinds of things like, you know, polka dot shoes here, the zori. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing interesting colored tabi, for example. <laughs> you know, this is red. Oh, my gosh. Clutch my pearls. That's red tabi socks. So yeah. real quick. Straight go- tabi. Going on that, there is a bookstore in L.A., in Little Tokyo, called mm-hmm. Kinokunya, mm-hmm. and they sell oh, yeah. tabi socks mm-hmm. there that some of them have shibas on it, and I'm like, oh, I want dogs on my socks. Yes. Oh, that's that. you too, Kinokunya. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah Kirokuri. Yeah. yeah, they have one here. Yeah, there's yeah. one in um, Arlington in Heights mm-hmm. in Mitsuwa. Oh, come on out to the suburbs. I know. Mitsuwa I know. is like 15 minutes from our office. Without so. a car, I don't get there oh, often. No, I know. Yeah, it, it is hard to get there without a car. Yes. There is, like, I think, a pace bus in the area. But um, anyway, so as we've been looking at design books like these, this is another one from Kimono Times. Sheila Cliff had a big part in this one, where we're seeing, you know, things like this guy who is yes. flicking off the camera. Wearing a gas you mask know, I like exactly. and a kimono. And this is a man wearing a woman's woman's piece. So again, we're kind of going towards oh, a more unisex yeah. idea of kimono. I think it makes a statement for where kimono fashion is going when the very, very first page oh. of the book is a walalita. Okay. So oh, a combination of wahoo yeah. and lolita style. Yeah. And um, also this like is... kind of OTT at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we will do this style, especially for um, some of our plus size customers who might not be able to fit the kimono in in the, the sort of closed front buttoned up samurai wife traditional style and we kind of mm-hmm. tell them like guys don't worry you just it's not like you don't have options here just put a petticoat just, on just you're good just put a petticoat <laughs> on you know she's got a striped hun eri oh my god we haven't seen those for a hundred years but you know this is actually traditional don't tell me this is not traditional mm-hmm. <laughs> you've been doing it, this for a long time it gives me an idea for my yukata uh huh mm. I mean we've got interesting hun eri going on here here, more interesting Haneri. So we're we're really taking a very strong look at things that people are doing in Japan right now. And this one, a kimono oh, with pants. Those are so fun. With, with really fun pants. We've got all kinds of interesting stuff like this. And, uh, and um, I'll let you guys take some photos of the book later because we, we do carry this book. Um, this book is really only available in Japan for the most part, but we do carry it. So, um, And that's Kimono Times, um, Wafuku mm. Anarchist. But to, to tie that into some of what yes. we're doing now, since a lot of the pieces that we get in are vintage. They're mm-hmm. vintage to antique. We do get mm-hmm. in new pieces. We have made it a point to hunt out, you know, new yukata because especially when it comes to size and making things available for a wide variety of body types, you know, the newer pieces are maybe a little bit more generous when it comes to sizing, right? Mm-hmm. The thing is is that since there are so many different ways that you can wear kimono and incorporate it into your fashion, we've been starting to look at, okay, let's not just look at how to wear kimono, but let's look at how to accessorize kimono. You mm-hmm. know, what makes a kimono a kimono, whether mm-hmm. it's the accessories that go with it, the way that it's worn, the way it's constructed, you know, other garments like the howdy or the happy and everything that you put with it. We've been playing around with different garments and different accessories, not just in, you know, what designs can we put upon them, but what can we actually make? You know, whether it's uh, having base garments manufactured in Japan and then bringing them here to the States to, you know, put different design elements on it or even what manufacturing here would look like under the, you know, in instruction and with all of the education and everything that we have acquired from Japan and from our Japanese partners. So what we have here on the table in front of you guys right now is our first line of Tangerine Mountain branded tubby socks. So the socks themselves are actually produced in Japan. Um, We import all of them directly here. So we are supporting the Japanese economy while we're doing this. And then we bring them here and through a process called sublimation printing, we are adding our own patterns and our own designs to them. When I say our own, we have designs that I've drawn. This one is a little bit of a shameless plug because we have our logo (laughs) in the background, of course, but uh, it was kind of... two foxes. Yeah, it was kind of a test print in a way to see what some of the, you know, gradation and colors and everything 
everything would mm-hmm. look like. Um, but then there are other patterns that you see before you that are actually taken from antique woodblock prints. So the geisha mm. one may look a little familiar to you guys since yes. you saw that yeah. triptych yeah. earlier yep. today. Yep. And then others are taken from antique obi and antique kimono. You know, these are things that, you know, haven't been produced for quite a long time in there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and with the way that a lot of the patterns on antique kimono and vintage kimono are, you don't necessarily have some of the same copyright concerns um, that you would. You know, it's not like we're printing Mickey Mouse on all of these things <laughs> yeah, here. Right. It's a slightly different thing. I mean, this is a butterfly. Exactly. A butterfly is a butterfly is a butterfly. Right. So um, we were able to use a lot of these traditional motifs. You have a butterfly, you have pine boughs, chrysanthemums, you have different floral designs here. So yeah, this is, you know, essentially reflective of a kimono style, but as you kind of just saw in some of the the design books and some of the modern fashion books here, this kind of thing is very in. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of bold graphic print is very much being done. In fact, there's there's a couple of companies. There's one in particular that a lot of uh, people in the kimono collecting set may know of called Ichiroya, where they are doing very similar things when it comes to bringing back some of the old antique Mm -hmm. color palettes and patterns and remaking them in modern ways for modern kimono. So mm-hmm. this is kind of being done not as a way to, you know, ape it or to copy it, but to kind of explore what this could look like for the American kimono industry um, that we're trying to help, you know, define and grow with the kinds of things that we're doing. And the nice thing is, is that because these are made of modern materials, you know, these are stretchy polyester, you know, mm-hmm. you can wash them. You don't have to worry about the dyes running, you know, mm-hmm. they're breathable. So your feet aren't really going to stink too badly when you pull them <laughs> off after wearing them on the convention floor all day, you know. Not that we've ever had that happen. No, of course not. Um, They smell like roses and strawberries all the time. Um, So we've been able to kind of play with mixing the old and the modern in very similar ways that people like Rima are doing. Um, And it's not just Tabi that we're doing, too. Something that uh, if any of our customers or Facebook or Instagram followers that are listening may know, we were the first foreign kimono business to be invited to participate at the Kimono Salon Nihonbashi in Tokyo this past Mm. October. Um, For those who don't really know the event, it's kind of like the SDCC of kimono for Tokyo. Nihonbashi is a very high-class area. If you can picture, like, Saks Fifth Avenue and Neiman Marcus having a baby, that's kind of... (laughs) Rodeo Drive. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's Nihonbashi, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's where the event took place. And uh, being the first American business to be there um, as part of a collaboration that we had with a kimono house called Kimono Onsukasa Kanda, we actually produced um, kind of like the preview of this line of tabi, specifically as a Japanese exclusive for the event. So, you know, we have the tangerine tabi. Terry's about to open up. Um, Sorry. It's okay. Sorry. It's no okay. worries. It's good radio. Uh, <laughs> you can tell it's really happening right now. <laughs> this is a design that I actually drew and created oh, wow. to celebrate our collaboration with Kimono Onska Sakanda. So you uh, have Illinois oh. and you have Shikoku. Very cool. Mm-hmm. We have Zenigata, which is a um, prominent landmark out um, in, in Shikoku. The, in Shikoku. Mm-hmm. That's where Kimono Onska Sakanda is based. 
obviously city skyline of Chicago, um, yeah. and then water because of course we're near the lake and they're near the ocean. So. Mm-hmm. That um, is yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's a cool idea. I also like how they're separated by like each foot, like on one mm-hmm. foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it's still the same body. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of a cool thing. So we were able to bring these there, and you know, yes, sell these there, but to see the reception from the Japanese people going through the event once they got over the did you dress yourself today the entire time um, you know once they kind of got past that they're like Tabi done in America that's so cool I like this you know I want to have this this is a cool and interesting way that the kimono industry can change and grow given that there are other people than just native Japanese that are interested in this kind of thing another type of garment that we had or an accessory rather that we had it's called a han eri mm-hmm. um, han meaning half eri meaning collar so if you were wearing uh, you know a jiban with your kimono the han eri is an accessory that you would iron and, and kind of loosely stitch on to it in order to kind of pop out color, pop out design. And, um, and again, in like the Kimono Times book, bold, bright, interesting. Like the striped Haneri mm-hmm. that we saw before. Are so in. That's what these yes. guys are for. Yes. That's what these do. Kind of like uh, the Peter Pan collars yeah, that we exactly. see nowadays mm-hmm. that people can just clasp on. Same mm-hmm. concept, just different context. Exactly. Mm-hmm. These particular ones that we have here were the Japan exclusives. We just got our shipment of our Haneri that were, again, produced in Japan in. So now we can, here's the secret, here's one of the secrets. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, we're going to be very soon releasing our own line of Haneri that are Tangerine Mountain brand Haneri that, cool. you know, the garments were produced in Japan and then the patterns are applied to them here in the States. Mm-hmm. And again, with it being the United States, we have different ways of caring for our clothing than people would in Japan for traditional Japanese garments. These things are made of washable fabrics. So yeah. if you are, especially Ooh. we hear on the, con- exactly, we hear right. on the convention set a lot like, guys, I wore this thing to the rave. How in God's name do I clean it? You know, <laughs> right. you know having Mistake something. Mistake number one. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, we should have a conversation about life choices when it comes right. to that first off. But yes. second off, yes, you can put these in the washing machine. And it's yes. not going to damage the garment. So you can mm-hmm. still enjoy it. If and you got makeup on it. this, which happens a lot mm-hmm. with collars. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. That yeah. happens to me all the time. And I'm just like, I sprayed the thing. Yep. yep. <laughs> exactly. And you still get makeup on it. And yep. so these are washable. Same thing with the tubby socks because everybody likes to wash socks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That um, is so cool. So yeah. another secret that we can hint at, even if we can't give all of the details of it. There, there are other things that we're looking at producing. In fact, oh, we have a meeting yeah. later on today after this oh, podcast wow. is over with here downtown for the Expansion of this idea and yeah, other Tangerine things. Mountain things yeah. that are going to be coming down the pipeline. Right. Um, thankfully, a lot sooner than we originally thought, yeah, which is yeah, great. So. But if you don't already like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, here's the shameless, <laughs> here's the shameless plug portion of the podcast. <laughs> yes. But um, we are going to be releasing details of those uh, as they are made available here, along with some of the interesting collaborations that we have going, not just with Japan, but with interesting and well-known entities here in the States. Yeah. To to oh, cool. kind of continue yeah. to enhance kimono. So, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, were, we, um, we love the American convention circuit, and there are some American businesses, you know, folks in America like you, for yeah. example, you know, you guys hear that are much more like culturally aware 
of Japan and what we are doing wouldn't be possible if we didn't have some awareness of Japan. Mm. So um, we're, we're definitely looking at all of the people kind of in our orbit mm. and saying, how who, can we who, help each other? How can yeah. We how do how do we make this bigger? How do yeah. we incorporate more culture into this? How do yeah. we get everybody thinking in terms of it's not just anime, it's not just video games, it's not just something that you binge watch on Netflix or that right. you put on your, your PlayStation or whatever. There's more to it than this. How do we incorporate this into everyday fashion? I Yeah, I've gotten a, a lot of people who like I start talking about J fashion with. They're like, you know a lot about this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't say. <laughs> you wouldn't. I wonder why that is. Right. It's not like I don't co-host an entire podcast about no, it. Right. There's an yeah, entire. Right there's an entire like cultural background yep. behind this. Not yeah. at all. Yeah, no, no. You know, and and again, the goal is to make things more accessible. You know, there's no reason why people in the state shouldn't know what a tabisak is. Exactly. That people should know about these things. You know, it's an important part of another culture. So. And then this this is probably the simplest uh, garment accessory that we've brought with, but it does give. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what I those love are. these. Exactly. Yeah, these are koshihimos. So these are some of the the almost ribbon like um, ties that are used to keep the kimono closed mm-hmm. as you get yourself so dressed helpful. and put the obi on. Right. Yeah. And you know, it is possible to get yourself dressed with just one of them. I've done it, but definitely having two a or three. Extra. Yeah. A lot of people tend to use three. Some people will use five or six, just depending upon what they're doing. To help themselves get their obi on and so we've, we've started you know putting our logo on things and mm-hmm. we're looking at what else are we going to be putting on these because these are a fun way to accessorize right even if you don't see it but wait there's mm-hmm. more care. it's like <laughs> underwear yeah it is like underwear, exactly. but people wear patterns on <laughs> yeah, their underwear anybody yeah. who's watched that victoria's secret fashion show knows yeah. that underwear is something that we decorate quite a bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i think with like j fashion there's this whole like lifestyle that goes towards it and wanting everything to fit the aesthetic so if mm-hmm. you can find like even if it's like your spoon like yes mm-hmm. that's got to be a part of it too yep. like, not only is it in the case of this particular accessory it's not just that we have the accessory it's not just that it's got our logo on it but uh while we can't necessarily elaborate on any of the details uh if you want to just take a read as to what it says under that logo then you'll have a sneak preview mm. at part of what we have also been actively working oh. on yeah. for those that can't see these things mm. yet the koshimo that we just passed across the table has our tangerine mountain logo on it um the name of our company is tangerine mountain imports and designs however what it says under the logo is tangerine mountain imports and exports and uh, as some of our fans may know so far our business has been featured twice on japanese television soon to be three oh. times on a show called Yuan and we've gotten a lot of really great international attention and mm. even more japanese support as people over there have learned about what we are and who we are and what we're doing and, and it's organic support too it's mm. It's, every time our episodes air, we get more messages from people just out of the blue saying, hey, we like this. Keep going. Gambate kudasai and, and <laughs> things like that. And, and so or I can't I can't believe that Americans are so interested in kimono. That's wonderful. So it's Especially a lot when of, they hear our sales number. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. And we're kind of like, like well, eh. 10,000 kimono at least per year. But it's 
more than that. Yeah, um, wow. especially now. Especially now, yeah. yeah. We've we've greatly expanded our convention schedule. But uh, as, but, as yeah. the text under the logo suggests, we've gotten a lot of interest. interest, and we're working to try to make this world a little bit smaller in many, many ways. Yeah. So. Very cool. Exciting. So as we've talked about before, Tangerine Mountain specializes in vintage kimono. Uh, have you seen any trends develop throughout the history of kimono? Oh, gosh. Um, just constant. It, I think actually one of the most prevalent things about kimono is that the most constant thing about kimono is change. As the, the forerunner to the kimono was the kosode, and this was during the Edo period. Um, and it, it looks a lot like the kimono. It's a little bit of a different silhouette, but um, and the sleeves are done a little differently. But as the kosode evolved into the kimono, part of the reason why it evolved into the kimono was because people were, the, the merchant class was getting richer and richer. The daimyo were getting poorer and poorer because they were required to travel to and from their fiefs to Edo. Um, and that's expensive. And that was done on purpose so that nobody could start trouble because they couldn't afford it. Um, and so a lot of that money went to the merchants. Now, if you're a merchant, there's no way that you could ever become a noble. There's no way that you could move up in social mm -hmm. class. And so that idea of class is very important throughout Japanese history. So what do you do with your vast stores of money if you cannot buy your way into political office or, mm. you know, not that that ever happens. Um, but, <laughs> no, just saying. Um, but what do you do with your vast troves of money? Well, you can show it off. And so people in Japan did what people today do and pour money into their clothing and into their mm. accessories and into their fashion. And, you know, I can afford this hugely expensive kimono that is just dripping with hand embroidery, or I can afford this completely zen-dyed, glorious, glorious mm -hmm. kimono with this extremely wide, long obi that could only be yeah. tied by a servant, and I can <laughs> afford it's servants. Like, you can also afford to wear it, like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't have to go anywhere. Right, like, you know, you mm -hmm. can afford, you are so rich that you can afford to have your children sitting around in expensive garments, not working, and mm -hmm. you can afford to have servants who carry their train or that can help them get dressed in these elaborate obi knots. And so that over time, kimono got more and more elaborate. There's also a lot of influence from kabuki theater. So of course, just like today, people were kind of meerkatting around looking at what the celebrities were doing yeah. and saying, okay, well, those guys were wearing these really thick, flashy obi, not these narrow strips of fabric. So I think I'm going to start doing that too. Okay, great. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, people would look at what the kabuki actors were wearing. Of course, the actors were wearing really flashy things because they're up on stage. Right. You need yeah. to be able to see them. Yeah. And so the the art was not exactly reflecting life, but then life started reflecting art. Yeah. <laughs> so there was that great celebrity influence. Um, and then over time, as, as more and more people were able to wear more and more sumptuous kimono, the method of wearing kimono changed from the sort of flowing, almost open bottom kind of style, which you saw the, the juban and then the kimono flowed around it to this tucked up way of wearing it into the yohashori and then the obi basically the otaiko came about it's the sort of pillow like drum yes. tie in mm -hmm. the back came about because mm -hmm. a bunch of geisha wore it that way for the opening of the taiko bridge and a whole bunch of people said "Ooh, all the geisha are doing it that way so we're gonna do it this way how'd they do that <laughs> right. okay how'd they do that well we're gonna do that way too okay <laughs> um and and so over time kimono grew and evolved and changed as people looked at each other and looked at what famous people were doing 
and looked at ways that they could show off their wealth. And kimono became more accessible to everyday people as time went on. So there's a lot of commercial reasons. There's a lot of political reasons. The intersection of, of course, influences from the outside world. There are a lot of textile designers that were looking to places like India. They were looking at places like Europe. Even though Japan was closed off during the Edo period, you still had that contact with the Dutch. You still had people that were looking out and seeing what kind of textiles were there. So the, the only real constant with kimono is change. So you had time periods where people were also looking back. So the Taisho period, about 100 years ago, you had this sort of nostalgia wave in which people were taking these traditional motifs. And, and instead of having them as little bitty motifs, they were making them into giant motifs <laughs> and, you know, very colorful because they had chemical dyes. And woo, that's exciting. Oh, chemical dyes. Chemical dyes. Woo. Um, you know, typically from Germany, chemical dyes from Germany. So you had that cultural exchange going on there. Those dyes weren't from Japan. But they were incorporated into kimono. You know, during the intervening years, kimono got maybe a little bit more tame and sedate, and then you had this sort of buttoned-up samurai wife style that came about. And, and But now, we're starting to see, again, a throwback to the Taisho period of 100 years ago. So you got this rolling nostalgia thing going on, yeah. you know? You got these bright bold patterns and these big haneri, and you've got these interesting tabi socks. And then, again, you also have foreign influence in That's the true, kimono. Yeah. You're seeing lace. You're seeing cats. Uh, you're you're see- seeing denim. You're seeing denim kimono. Denim oh. kimono is a huge thing. Some oh, of my kimono. God. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Saito-san's demo, uh, denim kimono at the kimono salon. So yeah. for thousands and thousands, thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars wow. with, st- with hand-stenciled um, designs on the denim. Mm-hmm. Um, You've heard of jorts. Now get ready for the joby. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You know, you're seeing materials that have never been used before. I mean, there's one booth that had um, resin geta. At the um, kimono so salon, yeah. At the kimono salon. Um, you uh, saw bedazzled obi. Bedazzled obi. Like, oh, literally, literally. I'm not even like joking or trying to make you know a reference like they were bedazzled they were bedazzled and they were glorious yeah Um, you had hair pieces that were reminiscent of pieces from the Edo period you know these dripping bita bita you know hair sticks that had these amazing details to them and and you last saw those well the the balls like what Sherry is going to say you also saw you know the very very simple version yeah she's got a little jingle bell Mm -hmm. kind of ball thing that's from the Meiji period but that that kind of thing is in right now and yeah. and even so Edo cute. period designs of two three hundred years ago you know you're starting to see that we saw obi that had piano keys on them yeah we saw obi sherry penguins penguins i finally got my penguin obi <laughs> she got a penguin obi it's a nishijin weave so it's it's from very famous weaving area in kyoto it's a very high class obi with penguins on it you know just cute penguins they're so cute they're marching on little ice uh, lots of lots of animal prints lots yep. of people wearing animal prints all throughout Salon. There were Obi that had Shiba Inu on them. Yeah. Um, yep. Rabbits. Rabbits were a big deal. Oh, God, yes. There were Obi with Egyptian hieroglyphs. But, I mean, let's be real. There was also, at one of the booths that was right across from ours at the Kimono Salon, there was a dude... I loved this guy. I have no idea who he was, what his name was. We didn't get a chance to be introduced at any point during the show. But he had a crocodile skin. 
Bernoulli. <laughs> and he had like the, the tail just wrapped around his whole waist, but then it had like American belt buckles, like leather belt buckles. Like you would see in the Old West. Like stitched like into cowboy. It. Yeah, so buckles. that you could wear, you know, this basically crocodile tail on you and then it buckled on and then the tail kind of hung down. Like, that is so if, funny. If he had turned it around his back, he would have been like a furry with yeah. the tail <laughs> hanging down. Yeah. Like, oh, it was yeah. amazing. It was, it was glorious. You know, um, I got a pair of Geta that have, um, or not Geta, Zori, that are reminiscent of the Union Jack. I I, I love British things. There are just fascinating techniques being used to weave things like wisteria vines into fabric, Mm -hmm. into kimono. Very expensive. And it it was great to be there and see this because it it helps support, you know, what we have seen throughout kimono Mm -hmm. history and what we've been telling our customers and what we've been discovering and rediscovering for ourselves all the time. This is why we go to Japan. right now, the only tradition is that it's constantly changing. Changing. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of like this wave of like more conservative, then it gets elaborate, mm-hmm. then it gets conservative, and yep. then elaborate exactly. again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you see that kind of thing in fashion all, all the time. time. But, and that's no the key different. because you see it in fashion. Yep. It's mm-hmm. not just tradition that should be put on a pedestal that and should be touched. read about yeah. in a book only that's behind not glass changing it's, it's history exactly it's not, it's not yeah. a static thing yeah. it is fashion mm-hmm. and fashion by its nature constantly changes and reacts to what's come before and what's in front of it mm-hmm. very interesting so how have you seen the combination of wafuku and j fashion develop has j fashion wafuku influenced mainstream wafuku and kimono? I think it has been a constant process. I think so, too. Kind of like how we were just talking about how things kind of come in waves. I think that there's a lot of really great examples as J-Fashion really started kind of screaming onto the international scene of traditional parts of kimono dress. And again, I'm using massive air quotes with the word Mm, traditional there. Even like a visual K artist using things like Hapi in with some of their costume elements that they use on stage to current and modern bands like, you know, Baby Metal doing like almost like dark gothic wall Mm -hmm. lowly kind of costuming elements with some Mm -hmm. of the stuff that they do as they're, you know, bouncing and screaming around the stage. I mean, looking back to Visual K years and years ago when I first got into it, there was always sort of this underlying vibe of Wafuku. And so even though you might see Western clothing in a way that you would often find those little throwbacks or those little references almost like an inside joke in a way but definitely you just knew that this was something from japan Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there's there are things done with their clothing that you would never see a westerner do like a westerner would never think to do this unless they had been steeped in japanese fashion history japanese that's true like the silhouette is different or even if they Mm -hmm. choose like a western an item, it's going to contribute to that silhouette. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting not to to just, you know, take the steering wheel here and just careen it, the car back into the past here, but going back to photographers like Felice Beato, you know, if you really dig into a lot of his photography, you'll find examples of people in Japan doing this stuff, not necessarily to the degree of, you know, making the Victorian style dresses with, mm-hmm. you know, the kimono fabric that are maybe a little bit more obvious, but you'll see dudes in the streets instead of wearing a juban, they're wearing a 
button-down shirt mm-hmm. underneath yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you'll come to, you know, the modern times, you know, where some of the more visual K-bands, they'll be combining, you know, Western jacket with, you know, traditional kimono or like the cover of the Kimono Times book, you know, the yeah. Akira Times compilation here. You yeah, know, you have so an amazing, cool. you know, vintage shibori kimono with a leather jacket. Yep. Yeah. You know? Yep. So I, I think that the whole concept of taking kimono and incorporating it into street fashion. I think it's always been there. I think it's always been there. And I think, and I may be crucified for expressing this to some <laughs> of the fashion communities out there. So sorry, guys. But I kind of feel like kimono in a way has always been the street fashion mm-hmm. for Japan just because of how the kimono as a garment has always existed there. So I think it's really more of a question of how have some of the non-Japanese elements come in and at points overtaken and then receded and then mm-hmm. popped up again. It, it's always been this kind of shifting sands kind of thing rather than a, okay, from this period to this period, it was just kimono. And then in this period, then Waloli was born. And then in this period, yeah, Visual this K is, was this born. Is mm-hmm. all, this is the time of Western wear and this is the time of kimono. It really, it, history isn't that neat. And I think even, you know, quote unquote, modern history or modern times, it's it's not that neat. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of elements in kimono where, for example, lace has been very heavily incorporated into mm-hmm. some kimono. I have a little twin stars yukata oh, that has cool. lace, um, all, you know, all along the collar, all along the wrist. Oh, that, um, that yukata, we had many troubles with customs getting that into the country. Oh, no. But that's fine because oh, yes. we got it. We got um, it. But, yeah. <laughs> Three so, hours on the phone with a customs agent. Yes. Yes. yes it's legitimate. It's yes. Legit. It's, it's not boot. It's okay. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we're definitely oh. seeing beautiful hair pieces, beautiful bows. Bows are another thing. Um, mm-hmm. Another kind of big thing to do right now is instead of doing your obiage, just tying it in the front and then tucking it in, people are doing it as a little bow on the side. It's very cute. Oh, yeah. Um, and sometimes people are adding extra sashes in a way, almost like the shikoki obi that are used for children's pieces and, and that used to be used to kind of hold up your train back when kimono were typically more flowing. We're seeing more of that done. So we're seeing extra bows popping up in places, you know, along mm-hmm. her obi. Mm-hmm. We're seeing bedazzled obi, but we're also seeing bedazzled like um, obidome. So you have these little chains of crystals or you have little plastic bows or resins or things like that that are used. So I see elements of certain kinds of Lolita style in areas of kimono as well. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely an exchange going both ways. And pockets. <laughs> yeah, pockets too. Yeah, no, the denim kimono, I have, I have yet to see a denim kimono that doesn't have like jean style pockets in approximately the place where typical jean pockets oh, yeah. would be, mm-hmm. which is really cool and actually very convenient. In Nemo's, you know, ACDC rag, yeah. you got the, having pockets in there. Yeah. You know, people love pockets and want pockets and thankfully fashion is like, okay, I give thee pockets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with kimono becoming more accessible and kimono going through this kind of revival as of late with ACDC Rag and other fashion designers, including yourselves, what would you tell a person who wants to incorporate kimono into their J fashion? First off, don't be afraid don't to be go afraid. for it. You know, for as many people that may try to throw shade on you for doing that, I think... There are going to be twice as many people that are going to be out there backing you up. Moreover, if you feel 
worried about being disrespectful. I think if you are coming from a place of wanting to incorporate it and you're asking yourself the question, mm-hmm. is this disrespectful? Am I am I doing this right? You know, is mm-hmm. this okay? By virtue of the fact that you're asking the question, that should already tell you that you're going down the right path. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because I mean, if you're just like, oh, I'm just going to do this just because I, you know, effing can. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. But... You know, if you're trying to, as a Westerner or as a non-Japanese person trying to incorporate that in, if you're like, okay, how are they doing it? If you're doing the same kind of meerkatting that literally everybody in fashion from any country ever has done, like, mm-hmm. how have they done that? Why have they done that? What's yeah. working for them? How can I make this work for me? I mean, in reality, you're following kimono tradition and fashion tradition worldwide by taking the time to sit there and figure out how to do that. Right. So first and foremost, don't be afraid to do that because I can't tell you how many people we have come to our booth, whether they want to wear kimono in the super traditional way or mm-hmm. whether they want to incorporate even something just as simple as a howdy to wear with like jeans and a T-shirt. Like, oh, my God, am I allowed? Like, you know, am I going to be yelled at if I do this? Or, right. or, or, or someone in Japan, if I go to Japan, you know, on my study abroad trip and I put a howdy on, you know, I'm going to have people cussing me out in the streets. Like, right, like right. A, no, you never would because yeah, it's not no, how that kind of works. Not what they would do. But, but no. even B, they won't be silently judging you for it yeah. because that's not that's not how any of this works. Right. <laughs> you know? So that's, that's my big first thing. I think also look at Japanese sources. Yeah. As much as possible. Don't be afraid to just check out American people on Instagram or Europeans on Instagram. Or just English-speaking forums. forums. Because that's another thing, that there is so much romanticization. There's that word again, romanticization. I just said like that word. I just trip over it. But there's still so much of putting kimono on a pedestal in English-speaking forums that you really have to get away from the English language as much as possible. And I know that's hard to do. You know, it's an easy thing for me to say as somebody who can speak some Japanese. But as much as possible, look at, even if you just look at rental shops in Japan, like just look for a rental shop, you know, and sometimes they'll say in English, rental shop. Mm -hmm. Um, Just go on Instagram, start looking for things like that. You know, get on Facebook, look for things like that um, and see where they are and see how they're doing things. Because I I guarantee you, the rental shops, they're making up OB ties on the fly. Oh, God, yes. They literally are. Like, we we will walk around and know that people are walking out of rental shops and walking around, like, Fushimi Nadi, for example. And we're looking at them and going, I have never seen that obi tie before. Or, that is not in any or book. Even, even as you're seeing, like, the people in the rental shops doing it and you just kind of see them, like, stop for that one second and just kind of, like, nod their head like, it's okay, I'm going with it. I'm and you're like, ah, innovation. Yeah, you can see people. You can literally see people innovating just in the photos that they take. Definitely try to get like to Kinokuniya for example mm-hmm. they'll have magazines they'll have oh, fashion yeah, magazines you know try to get at some of those fashion magazines mm-hmm. um, and, and see what people are doing even if you just grab the magazine just take a quick flip through it even if you can't afford to buy it it's okay just take a quick flip through it and see what people are doing over there because it's one of the things that you're going to get is that national perspective like from folks inside Japan who are not putting kimono on a pedestal and also by extension they're not putting Lolita on a pedestal either. Mm-hmm. If you look yeah, on true, Twitter, yeah. for example, you'll see people posting Harajuku walks. You're going to see people posting, you know, pictures of themselves mm-hmm. just on on fashion days in 
Harajuku, you'll see what people are doing. Moreover, mm-hmm. you'll also see pictures inside some of the uh, secondhand shops where both Angelic Pretty and Baby the Stars Shine Bright are sold in the same store. <gasps> oh, let my me God. let me find my pearls to clutch them yes, again. You know, like, I must clutch like, my pearls. Like, it's okay. Yeah, they do that there. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it doesn't like, need to be a fight. Yeah, or even just all like the J fashion style distinctions that we talk about here. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it is still like important to try and categorize things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you're seeing the street snaps and things like that or them talking about it, they're not like tagging it. This is Fairy K and this is this thing yeah. and that's that thing. They're exactly. just tagging it like, oh, I'm wearing this thing, you know, yeah. something like that. This is what yeah. I'm wearing and this yeah. is what I'm experimenting with. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It really, really is. You know, if you want to take a black kimono, add a little lace on the bottom, like in this photo here, and mm-hmm. put a belt over your obi, wear a pillbox hat, go ahead and do that. that is so you know? Cool. Yeah. And and wear pink socks and western shoes. Yeah, go for it. She's got a spiked bracelet going on here and this sort of tutu like thing. You want to talk about influence of Lolita, here's your bows, right? Yeah. A totally different look here. Here Here's your bows. You've got looks like this where the obijime is tied in a bow. You can also see her koshimo hanging out here. I mean, don't don't tell me like I know, grab your pearls again, right? (laughs) Don't be afraid and don't let English language forums dissuade you from experimenting, from trying things out. Look at the Japanese sources as much as you can find and Mm -hmm. see the, almost like the casualness or the easy kind of feeling, the good feeling that comes about it. Because ultimately, this is fashion. It it should make you feel good. Mm -hmm. If you're not feeling good wearing this, if you're like, this isn't me, this isn't my style, then don't wear it. Mm-hmm. You know, or if you look at kimono and say, well, this sort of samurai wife style that everybody tells me is the only way to wear kimono, that's not me. I mean, that for me personally, that is not me. I am not this button-down samurai wife style kind of kimono wearer. That's not how I do it. Don't do it. You know, mm. I, I mean, don't don't feel like you can incorporate your cowboy boots and hat in with your <laughs> kimono. We've seen it done in Japan. We've seen it done in the states. We've done it ourselves. We've been taught. There's been a little like joke trend going around. The- the J fashion forums where mm-hmm. it's like cowboy Lita, mm-hmm. where people yeah. have been having uh, yeah. pink cowboy boots in their fairy mm-hmm. K core. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. yeah. What Absolutely. is this? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and I think also ultimately we have to remember that the more that people tear each other down, the more it becomes a, an elitist thing, mm-hmm. the more that, that it becomes unwelcoming to other people. So if you're coming at it from a welcoming perspective, and an inclusive perspective, then you're going to start seeing the value in what other people are doing, even if it's not something that you would do yourself, as opposed to being the police, you know, being the Lolita police or the J fashion police or the kimono police. Even Mm -hmm. in Japan, people will complain about the kimono police, you know, the Mm -hmm. people who walk up to you and start adjusting your obi because (laughs) you did it wrong. Mm -hmm. And and it's like... And it can happen. It can happen. You know, I mean, that does exist and folks like that do exist. Okay, that's their universe. I'm 
not going to worry about them Mm -hmm. because they're not people that get to dictate who I am and what I look like. The first time I was in Japan, first and only time, um, Mm -hmm. I went to Kyoto and one of the first nights I wore my yukata that Mm -hmm. I had bought in Tokyo just two days before, Mm -hmm. just walking around at night, getting dessert and dinner with my aunt. And I felt the stairs and I'm like, oh God, I did something wrong. I know I did something wrong. And then my aunt was just like, maybe it's just because they think you're pretty. I'm Mm -hmm. like, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's yeah. just because I am a foreigner in yep. a foreign land. And they, exactly. they're just like, this This baka guy kokujin can wear yukata? Yeah. What? Yeah. This is amazing. And yeah. I just didn't think of it that way because yeah. I come from a place of like, I am the weird kid and everyone knows that I'm the weird kid. Mm. So I'm used to people thinking I'm the weird kid everywhere. Right. And just having that kind of flip of the perspective mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, the Yukata police aren't going to come after me. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, I would say try to avoid the negativity. There are always going to be negative voices out there. You can't let that dictate who you are, how you do things, how you run your life. If you have a live and let live attitude towards other people, then you're going to be a lot happier yourself in what you're wearing, and you're going to be a lot happier seeing other people take joy in the same kind of things that you do, even if they're doing it in a different way that you would. Mm -hmm. I I think in many communities centered around Japanese fashion, if we lose the judginess, then it's going to make everybody a lot happier. I'm not sure if you follow her on Instagram, but there was a person who interviewed us for one of her thesis projects cool. in co- for college. Uh, her name is Catherine Rose. Oh, yeah. And let me see if I can find her yeah, Instagram. Yeah, she does do some really interesting yes. things. Um, her Instagram is only frills and horses, and she creates her own kimono and makes it into her own... Uh, J Fashion. I just stumbled across this Instagram recently. Let me see. This is one of her most recent pieces that she's made. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. um, Was it like the bondage thing? Yes, a harness. The harness, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, so just an example of that ingenuity. And she really has a no-fear aspect to it. It's good. It's good. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, and let's let's be real. I mean, doing anything that's new can feel kind of scary. And then when you add on the, you're doing something new and foreign, then that can ratchet up the anxiety a little bit. And then in the States, we're very sensitive to the idea of cultural appropriation and stepping on other cultures' toes. But we've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of customers over the years. Mm -hmm. And I can count on one hand the number of times that someone has been outwardly disrespectful Mm -hmm. out of, you know, less than five people, fewer than five people out of thousands. That's a pretty good track. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I really think that most people are coming at this totally from the right place. That's good. I'm very glad. So what would you tell a person trying to dress in kimono for the first time? So this is like more traditional kimono. Okay. That is gotcha. not like, gotcha. like yeah. J-fashion-esque. Yeah. So, so I have a spiel that I do at the booth. And... I usually end up apologizing to our <laughs> neighbors <laughs> that are around us at the booth because by the end of each con, they'll probably be able to recite it right along with me. Poor people. 
first and foremost, when people look at a kimono, especially if it's hanging up on, on one of our racks, they go, oh my God, it's so long. I'm so short. I promise you, no disrespect, but they're not growing Jolly Green Giants out. <laughs> yeah. Most you know. people are not extremely tall. Exactly. So I, I, the first thing I tell a person is don't worry about the length because the whole concept of kimono is that we adjust the height to you. You know, you don't have to worry about cutting it, tailoring it. I'm not going to have like a sewing machine behind my booth to hem it up for you. Like, no, you just you hike it up and you tie it off. Second most important thing, a lot of people will put on the kimono and what they'll do is they'll grab the upper lapels, kind of their chest to close it almost as if you would a bathrobe. Right. The problem is, is that regardless of whether a kimono is technically too big or technically too small, if you try to close the kimono that way, you're going to be coming open and tenting at the bottom because that's not how they were designed to be put on. What you want to do is you want to grab the lower lapels, a little bit like closer to your thighs, your knees, that kind of thing, and very gently kind of lift it up and tug it forward. You want the bottom of the kimono, if you're doing more of the traditional way, to be kind of at the back of your ankles ish depending upon the shoes you're wearing the heel you know if if you're wearing zodi it'll be you know a slightly different place than if you're wearing a high heel shoe you want to hike it up to adjust it for your height and then while the garment is still touching the back of your legs that's when you actually close it so you start from the bottom You work your way up. Another thing that I would probably tell people, too, is that it is actually a foreign garment. (laughs) It's not done Western style. So in Western wear, we're used to pulling things on, and then it's very tailored. It's very fitted. But for kimono, you fit it to your body. So we're not Mm. used to that level of possible adjustment. In the West, you know, we're not accustomed to adjusting clothing to fit us on the fly. But that's what Mm -hmm. you do with kimono. Yeah, and then once you get that that bottom part done, then you can figure it out the top. Out the top part. The top part's going to feel very, very messy at first. It's going to yeah. feel super messy, like, oh, my God, I'm flashing everyone. What am I doing? Like, yeah. like it's okay. The kimono's not attacking you. We're going to yeah. get to We're that. not, not <laughs> you know? going to be flashing people. Don't yeah. worry. It's fine. Yeah. So one, once you hike it up to where you want the length to be. Um, then you tie it off with the hemo. So that's that little tie that goes around. Sash. So you tie it off with the hemo. And then from there, you blouse the kimono over that hemo, kind of like you would if you were blousing like a shirt or a polo over jeans. This is what trips up a lot of Americans. Because for us, we're very much like, I don't want more fabric at my waist. Mm-hmm. I want less fabric yeah. at my waist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you look, even in anime, if you look at uh, especially female characters, if they're wearing a kimono, they have have the obi and then the animators will draw like a little line almost like they're underlining the obi that's an actual thing that's the blousing it's called mm-hmm. ohashori and when you blouse the kimono over that himo it helps to keep the kimono at that proper length so it's not going to slip down and you're not going to be tripping over it as you're walking around and then as you finish doing you know your crisscrossing and getting your collar laying straight when you put the obi on a lot of people think that the obi is you know the thing that holds the garment up on the body and that the second you take off the obi you're just going to like have the kimono go flying (laughs) off of you somehow it doesn't work that way but the obi does help kind of lock everything down it helps lock the collar in place it helps lock that ohashuri down so that you're not going to be becoming disheveled as you're twisting and And another thing i would probably add is don't be afraid of sashes don't be afraid of adding more koshihimo or sashes or whatever you have at hand. I mean, some people will use twill tape, some people will use twine. It's all good. You know, whatever works for you, 
doesn't matter. Some people will also use um, clips, like coding belts, is what that's called in Japan. It's a coding belt, but people have made them using like bedsheet clips and and mm-hmm. some elastic. You know, you can make a lot of kimono accessories. Yeah. So my my sensei would say, you know, if you ask, you know, uh, what do you do if it's too bi- too big? Add another tie. What do you do if it's too small? You add, add another, another tie. tie. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's too long? Add another, add another tie. tie. If it's too short, yeah, add another add, tie. Add, so, add sashes. Yeah. The, the add ties, sashes. the sashes, they're, they are your friends. And, I just mm-hmm. personally recommend for whatever sashes you are tying, try, if you can avoid it, try not to do square knots. Try no. to do little bows because... Well, or you, you can you can do, you can wrap around twice and then tuck, which is right. how you'll see it in kimono books. Because the idea is that if you tie a knot, like a really good solid knot, if you sweat into it you don't want to have to cut it off mm-hmm. yeah mm. so if you're not thing. used to wearing kimono maybe give yourself an out <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. quick release <laughs> quick release something like that mm-hmm. um and then for the obi all of this requires some practice and that that's one of the things that we have to always remind our customers like because sometimes we'll have people who will go to their hotel room later on that night and they'll try to put it on and they're like oh i failed at this in america we're very afraid of failure you know, we're very much afraid of doing it wrong. And then we're also afraid, not only are we afraid of doing things wrong, and not only are we afraid of failure, but we're also afraid of offending people. So you've got that extra mm-hmm. layer of, not only did I just fail, but it's like dishonor on me, dishonor on my cow. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I have dishonored everybody, and I am a complete failure of a human being. It's not like that. It takes practice. It takes practice in Japan. It takes practice in the States. Everybody needs practice. So if you feel like you don't have it looking the way that you want, that's fine. Take it off, do it again. Keep practicing. It's any skill. You just keep practicing. So you guys just got back from OhioCon. Yes. What other events are you going to be attending? Many. <laughs> a um, lot. We uh, Terry's going to pull up our convention schedule here. We do have an updated convention schedule currently on our website. Um, if you go to www.tangerymountain.com, under the convention schedule tab, that's where you're going to find the most up-to-date listings. The next one that we currently is have Anarchy. on our calendar yeah, is Anime Milwaukee. Um, it's been a staple on our calendar kind of since day one. That was the first show that we got Well, it was the first to? big non-college show. The very first show we ever did was that tiny, tiny but little we, one. Well, but it was one of the first ones that we were invited to. Yes, which it was, was. Which was really, really cool. Um, we've got Anime Milwaukee. We've got Naka Con. Uh, we've got Costume Con 37. We've got No Brand Con. Actually, it says pending for Colorado Anime Fest. But oh, no, we just got we the acceptance for that. We just got the that. acceptance for that. That actually... Um, uh, Anime Central. We're going to be at that. So that's in the yeah, Chicago area. We'll see you guys yeah. there. So, yeah, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. come check us out there. If you're local to the Chicago area, ASEN is great. Come and, come yeah. see us. We have more booth space at Anime Central as well yes. this year. Yes. So Ooh. we're going to be able to have some of the exciting things that, oh, you know, we've yeah. talked about, some of the exciting things we teased. And more J fashion. And more J fashion. This has been our goal, too. As a business, we want to make sure that we are not neglecting the Japanese street fashion. We mm-hmm. want to incorporate J fashion into our booth and into mm-hmm. our imports as a more regular item. So oh, working okay. with ACDC Rag has been, has been very important for us to achieve this goal. We've been, the last year, we've been doing smaller amounts, you know, just to, to see what, what people in the States like mm-hmm. yeah. and what what J fashion aficionados like you guys would be looking for, but also mm-hmm. people who are completely uninitiated. Right. What yeah. they're going to be interested in, because we like to do for J fashion what we've been trying to do with kimono, and that is 
try to make it more accessible to more people who might not have even known this is a thing. Right. As well um, as affordable. And, and keep right. it affordable, too. So our prices for ACDC rag are not different, really. They're, they're not significantly different than what you'll see at the ACDC rag stores in Japan. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit extra for shipping, but that's that's it. You know, we're not jacking up the price here because, mm-hmm. again, just like Rima has said, he wants his pieces to be affordable. We're in the same boat. We want this to be affordable to people. And the beautiful thing about ACDC rag is that he, they've got such great variety that, yeah. you know, if you buy one of the yukata, but then you decide, hey, I want one of those tops or, hey, I like that purse or I like those gloves. You've got plenty of room in your wardrobe right. to expand. In your wardrobe and your wallet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we've been really looking at our convention schedule for this upcoming year to see where do we need to expand to accommodate more J fashion. Now we've got permanent space on our racks for J fashion. We want this to grow. Mm -hmm. We want this to expand. We want more, 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 more. Because we hear from our customers, you guys want more, 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 more. So that's that's what we want to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. And so where can we find you guys online? Um, www.tangerinemountain.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just spelled, you know, tangerine, like the fruit, mountain, like the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then we're on Instagram. Yes, we're at Tangerine Kimono on Instagram. And uh, we are also on Facebook. So Facebook, you know, slash Tangerine Mountain. Yeah. Like or just do. search for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're if, on Twitter sometimes. Um, if you're looking for us in Japan, then you would look for Mikanyama. Uh, Mikan is, you know, basically tangerine and Yama Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, some people know us a little bit better over there as Mikan Yama just yeah. because of the TV exposure that we had and the translation mm-hmm. of what our business mm-hmm. name is over there. Uh, okay. So, which was um, quite a thing. <laughs> trying, to, it was. trying to explain our business name in Japan <laughs> was one of the first hurdles that we had to. Yeah, because it's not a family name. It's, it's not, not something that, name. you know, was passed down. It was yeah. based on oh, experience yeah, yeah. rather than, yeah. you know, genetics. Yes. Um, yeah. So that that was a thing. But, uh, yeah, search for Tangerine Mountain. Search for Mikanyama. You know, you you will find us yes. perfectly cool. easily. Well, thank you guys so much. This thank was you. an amazing yeah. experience. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Of yeah. course. Thank you it was so a pleasure. Much. If you guys are interested in hearing more about kimono and cultural appropriation, and maybe we'll even talk about our first experiences with kimono. That's something yes. I'm very interested in. Uh, <laughs> please become one of our patrons. Uh, we are on Patreon. To get that patron exclusive content, it's only three bucks a month. Super easy to do. We will send that to you as soon as it is edited. And with that, my name is Hayden. My name's Kamila. This has been OK Podcast, and we will see you all next month. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.